0: you will get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Now, for those of you who don't qualify, there is still the 10% off using the code BTS10, Behind the Shield 10, for a one time purchase. Now, to learn more about Thorne, go to episode 323 of the Behind the Shield podcast with Joel Totoro and Wes Barnett. Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Bill Denahan. Now, Bill has had an incredible career within the military working as a helicopter pilot. So we discuss a host of topics from his transition into aviation, nuclear and biological warfare, flying special operations, the Hammer 34 rescue, firefighting medical transport, search and rescue, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, Subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I do love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Bill Denahan. Enjoy. Well, Bill, I want to start by saying, firstly, thank you for coming on the Behind the Show podcast. Secondly, thank you to Dave for connecting us. So, as an opener, how do you know Dave Prochera best?
1: Yeah. So, uh, well, first of all, i have to lead off by saying that I, I hope I can um, live up to Dave's hype. Um, you know, Dave being my hype man here. Um, yeah. So, uh, I was in the. I joined the Air Force. Well, I started out in the Army, but I was in the Air Force from about '93. Um, to 2014, Uh, in 2001, um, just before 9-11, I was, uh, um, I PCS'd to uh, the UK for uh, the RAF at Royal Air Force Exchange. So, um, if anybody's not familiar with that, it's basically a pilot goes from the US to the UK, serves in the uh, Royal Air Force, and a Royal Air Force pilot comes over to the US, serves in the US Air Force. Uh, usually it's about a three-year tour, um, and uh, we we are part of that squadron.
0: But well, I think I saw that same program in the film Pearl Harbor, where Ben Affleck goes to England and stops right. the entire World War II. Is that is that similar?
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. He basically <laughs> saved the world there. Yeah. He did everything. He did, he did, and
0: the English were sure all incompetent fools. It was so beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: That that was a little bit different because he was. Um, actually an Eagle Squadron uh, pilot. So we had American volunteers go over there uh, to the UK to save you guys because obviously you needed saving. Right? Yeah, clearly. Before we, before we, yeah, clearly. A bunch of bumbling <laughs> idiots
0: too. just fumbling around on, on, a, on an island in the middle of the Atlantic.
1: Right, <laughs> Thank right, God right. he showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we do nowadays. We get you guys to come over and tell us how things are. So, uh, so it's a kind of a mutual exchange now.
0: Okay, so, so I look forward to Pearl Harbor too then.
1: There you go, there you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's when the Brit comes over, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, so I went over for the exchange, um, went to the uh, Qualified Helicopter Instructor course up at RAF Shawbury uh, for about, well, it was foot, um, was it hoof and mouth or foot and mouth at the time? And the course got delayed, so it wanted up taking about six months to uh, finish the course because they had to uh, suspend flight training. But after that, uh, went down to RAF Benson, and was assigned to a 33 squadron flying in the, uh, flying the uh, Puma uh, HC Mark 1 uh, with uh, with the squadron there. And uh, Dave came in from, I believe he came in from Northern Ireland at the time. He was up there, uh, uh, flying up there and then came down to 33. So that's where we met. Um, Dave and I uh, kicked it off as uh, drinking buddies pretty quick. And, uh, and developed pretty good close relationships. So yeah. Yeah. became pretty good friends. So went to, um, OIF, which you guys call Optelic, um, and, uh, for the invasion of Iraq. And, uh, we, uh, we didn't get to fly much together there. I think we flew maybe once or twice, but, um, but flew in, uh, flew in combat there in Iraq for a little bit and, uh, and just, you know, have been keeping in touch throughout the years. Um, I went back to Iraq in 2005 uh, to advise the Iraqi Air Force, uh, which was um, a shit show. But uh, <laughs> but uh, but I, you know, man got to do what man got to do. And uh, so I'm in Baghdad, uh, and I see a a, a Puma land uh, down the ramp, and uh, I go, oh well, there's got to be my buds, and uh, walk down there, and uh, sure enough, there was uh, there was Dave. <laughs> so uh yeah so got to run him into our in iraq as well uh, again so So,
0: so while we're on the subject what elements created a shit show in that particular force at that time in history
1: oh man um where do i begin (laughs) so the uh you know we were trying to build up um the iraqi air force again which was kind of a joke. I was sent over there. I was part of a squadron. We did a uh, foreign internal defense work. Um, most of my time was spent in the Philippines, but, uh, my, uh, uh, squadron commander, um, said, Hey Bill, you're going to Iraq for six months. And, uh, I was like, well, I'd rather go to the Philippines for six months. But, uh, <laughs> I said, no, you're going to Iraq. Um, he came over with us just to see the initial, uh, conditions over there. And we had a had about a six man team from the squadron. Um, we had three pilots, a flight engineer, um, a maintainer. Um, who else we have? Oh, we had a life support guy. But anyway, so we were supposed to start to you know help them build up their fledgling uh, capabilities, right? So we get to Baghdad. We're in the green zone, and we go to uh, what was uh, Cmat Air, which was the combined military advisory, excuse me, and training team. And uh, there was actually a Royal Air Force um, group captain who was uh, in charge. And uh, so we knew it was going to be bad when we sat down with him uh, to talk about what we were supposed to do. And we asked him, well, what do you want us to train them to do? And he looked at us and he he said, I was hoping you'd tell me. Um so <laughs> from the get go uh we knew this was going to be bad. Um and he, you know I he was a, he was a great guy but uh he was a uh, you're probably familiar with some of the RF uh, aircraft he was a uh, a Tristar navigator which is a tanker. Um everything that the Iraqi Air Force had at that time was small light aircraft, helicopters, that kind of thing. So he was, you know, uh, he was out of his depth really, <laughs> you know when it comes to uh, what we were trying to do. And then we asked him, about well, what kind of helicopters you got? Well, you've got uh, some uh, UH-1Hs that were donated uh, from uh, the country of Jordan, the Jordanian Air Force. And we said, OK, uh, what kind of shape are they in? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. They've been um, refurbished um, by a well, I won't say it here, but a major American uh, defense contractor. So we're like, oh, OK, what do they do? Oh, they're completely refurbished. Okay, what kind of weaponry do they have? Do they have what kind of door guns? Are they using Soviet door guns or Russian door guns? Are they using American equipment? Oh, there won't be any door guns. Well, how are we going to fly around Iraq without any defensive capabilities? Well, we we can't put offensive uh, weapons on the, on these platforms. And uh, <laughs> a door gun is not an offensive weapon. I mean, we're not going to invade Iran, you know, with a, a bunch of huge fucking door guns on them, you know. Um so, OK, no door guns. OK, so what kind of, um, you know, uh, self-defense suite do you have on as far as chat flares, um, you know, missile warning indication systems, anything like that? Oh, there won't be any of that either.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness.
1: So, so so you want us to just fly these basically Vietnam era Hueys around Iraq, uh, completely defenseless um, in in a non-permissive environment. Uh, Yeah, that's basically the idea. Um, So we went to uh, Taji and uh, started to set up shop there. And um, they were supposed to have a maintenance structure, something set up. And uh, there was nothing, uh, absolutely nothing. Um, There were no spare parts. Um, We had flown one of the aircraft up to Taji from Baghdad uh, via Biap and uh, got there. And um, just landed on the ramp, and it sat on the ramp for <laughs> for for a couple of months because we hadn't had anything to support it with. We had no fuel. Uh, we had no petroleum, oils, lubricants, anything. I had to go across the runway to the uh, Army. Uh, the 3rd uh, ID was there at the time. Uh, their aviation uh, brigade was stationed at a Taji or part of it. And I had to go to the uh, brigade commander and beg and borrow um, anything I could from him to and uh, get the aircraft flying um and we did this for six months and I finally gotten with the um the Royal air Force uh group captain, and I recommended to him that um we shut this shit show down <laughs> basically it was we we couldn't get anything accomplished and I just recommended to him uh and I briefed a couple generals as well that you know we need to get a different aircraft, get better aircraft, get better support. We need logistics support. We need everything. <laughs> basically, you you didn't provide us with anything. Um, so we basically left. And But after that, they did, they wound up upgrading those Hueys. There were still Hueys, but I mean, Hueys a great aircraft. I got a lot of time in Hueys. Um, it just wasn't really, I think, suited for what they, I guess, what they, if they ever figured out what they wanted to do uh but they did upgrade the engines they completely refurbished them in real time this time um they put uh, door guns on them they put a um a flare system you know against uh, ir missiles what they needed uh, i think they actually had some kind of uh, uh alq jammer on it or something like that as well so uh, so at least it was a, a a better platform and then they also had a better plan for logistic support and training support and everything uh moving forward so if anything i guess by, you know, me and my team just blowing the whistle on it. We did get something done, (laughs) though it was painful sitting in Taji for six months with broken helicopters and people up in Baghdad screaming at us to just go fly with them. (laughs) Go go fly with them to do what? (laughs) You know? So it was just, like I said, it's just a shit show. So, but uh, that was probably, you know, my worst, experience in the military, you know, deployed experience. I mean, just as far as just things as being, you know, foobar, man, it was just crazy. So
0: now in the first responder professions, but you've also got a lens in and we'll get to that you know, later in the conversation. But I've had the the pleasure really of, of working for some of the best fire departments, I would say in the country and by far the worst one. So I got a really, you know, interesting, diverse lens where, the the departments that were great the why was very very strong so when you did training when there was logistics if you understood the whole mission the whole you know, purpose there you know there was the equipment there was the training there was the man man or woman power um conversely the worst one it was purely checking boxes so someone could slide a piece of paper to someone else and say oh we're taking care of that when you look back now at what was wrong the first time and what was remedy the second time from a leadership perspective. What, what were the things that were, were done incorrectly the first time that really put you and your, your, uh, you know, men and women that you were over there with in a lot of danger.
1: Yeah, I think it was just, um, it was just a purely political move. I mean, in the end, I mean, it was, let's just get some helicopters throw them at a base and we'll get some Americans over there and fly with them, and then we can, you know, go do the PR tour, saying that look, we are standing up, um, you know, Iraqi Air Force helicopter capability, with you know, and but there was no plan. And like I said, I mean, I'm I'm talking to a TriStar Group captain who is asking me, what or us, what we what we should do with them. Um, so, you know, if they had maybe a uh, you know gotten a helicopter guy in there. Uh, Or a light aircraft guy, because we did uh, also do um, uh, some light aircraft stuff, not me, but uh, part of my squadron. Uh, And Unfortunately, a very sad story, but the pilot that we sent over, uh, Brian Downs, um, was killed in uh, an aircraft uh, mishap, Uh, not because of enemy fire. Um, The aircraft that he was flying was just a piece of shit. Um, and he was out there flying with, uh, um, an Iraqi air force pilot. And, uh, actually he had two us air force, uh, combat controllers in the back and, um, and they crashed, uh, and died. And the, the reason why was because the aircraft, um, had a mechanical um, malfunction and the aircraft they were flying. It wasn't even a, it wasn't a military aircraft. Again, this goes to the fact that they were just throwing stuff over there. Um, they, it was a kit build aircraft with a turboprop engine. Um, yeah, that they had acquired for the Iraqi Air Force to just go out and do do some training in. And uh, and he was trying, uh, it, he was a great, you know, great guy. He was a very, very leaning, uh, you know, lean forward type of dude. And uh, he was out there trying to do some, um, they were trying to do, I think, a, a, a landing strip survey um, with the combat controllers uh, out in the desert. And I uh, wound up crashing, uh, crashing, and crafting, uh, killing everybody on board. So it was that kind of thing that, you know, and when that happened, I mean, that was probably about four months into what we were doing. And um, and it, re- it reinforced to me that I was doing the right thing by telling CMAT that I wasn't just going to go out and fly with these guys just for the sake of flying with these Iraqis, just to prove, you know, just for, um, you know, a political bump, a PR bump. You know, this, this was not the right thing to do. If you're, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. <laughs> you know, and uh, um, I'm not going to be part of, you know, some of my guys in my, my group, you know, my team uh, getting killed for, for really no, no reason, you know? So, I mean, what, going back to what could have been done uh, right. Um, they needed to go in with experts in those fields, you know, helicopter counterinsurgency aviation, Which is what our squadron, that's that's what our squadron did. I mean, we traveled around the world and we did, you know, trained air forces and counterinsurgency operations. But they sent us over just as a bunch of pilots and mechanics to get these guys running. Our squadron, normally what we would do is we would go to a country and we would do an assessment of their capabilities. And then we would come up, we would go back, we'd come up with a plan, present that to the theater commander And then go back into that country and execute the plan to build a capability.
0: With all the right tools and equipment.
1: With all the right tools, right equipment and everything. And that's what should have been done here using our capability. We should have gone over there, done an assessment for two or three months, gone back to the States, said, "Okay, here's a list of the things that we need. Um, Here's how we need to organize the squadron. Here's the training program. And then go back and execute. Um, That would have been the right thing to do. But, you know, again, that's not what happened. So um, and then another thing, too, um, we would get um, these um, usually Air Force officers, uh, Lieutenant Colonels that would show up to Taji and kind of show up at our hooch and they would uh, say, hey, I'm Lieutenant Colonel such and such. And I've been sent here by cmat OK, sir, uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> They're a really good. Answer. I think he thought because I was only a major at the time and I had another major and another captain with me. And I think he thought he was going to be in charge. And uh, I, I had to sit him down, you know, after he introduced himself, I had everybody around. And I kind of took him to the side and I said, hey, sir, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't know what you're doing here. Um, and oh, he only said he was only going to be there for 30 days. And uh, I go, what are you going to do in 30 days? And, uh, and he goes, and I basically told him, I, you're, you might be, I don't know what you're here for, but you're not in charge of my team. Okay. We're going to do our thing and you do whatever it is you do for the next 30 days <laughs> with all due respect. <laughs> yeah. And that was, and he, he basically acquiesced he agreed. He's Like, okay. <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that's the, that's the, the environment living. It was kind of, you ever watched the, uh, the movie catch 22,
0: I don't know if I have.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's 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 you know it's a World War II film. It's was made in the '60s. It's a little bit a uh, little bit out there, a little bit crazy. But there's just some really odd things that are going on during that movie that you know you don't usually associate with the John Wayne World War II movie. And uh, it was almost like that. It was surreal in a way, <laughs> you know that here I am in this in, in Iraq, and I've just got all of these just. This crazy freaking things going on around me, you know. Just people showing up and saying, Hey, I'm Colonel such and such, and I'm in charge. Okay, dude, but whatever, man, you know. So,
0: well, even I had the uh, Rudy Reyes on who's a uh, Marine recon. Um, and Generation Kill, the TV show, was based on you know the actual deployment that he was on, and he actually played himself right. in the show. But you got a it was a great, great show because you got an insight, definitely, into some of the mental health impact of combat. Um, you know, the the good leadership, the bad leadership, but also the element of just you know um, lack of equipment. Some of the the you know, vulnerability of those those troops, especially early on, where you know they literally had regular hummers that they were driving through, you know, not even having a, you know batteries for their their heads up displays or any of these things. And it does strike me so many times when I hear members of the military coming on the parallels with first responders and so you know there's a lot of podcasts out there that they're all firefighter podcasts and they're great but the reason why i like to step way outside is there are so so many parallels and therefore so many things that we can learn when things are done well in law enforcement in a corrections dispatch military whatever it is but also so many cautionary tales that absolutely parallel what i've seen in my career as well
1: yeah, yeah. No, no definitely. And uh, even between um, the different, you know, countries, when I went over and went to Iraq with the Royal Air Force, um, you know, I was up until going to Taji and doing that with Iraq. Every time I had gone uh, to war, we were pretty well prepared, um, mostly well equipped uh, to do our job. Um, you know, a Desert Storm, I went down with the army and... Um, you know, 7th Corps from Germany, you know, pretty much had everything that we needed, uh, not necessarily desert equipment, but uh, but we had everything that we needed to, you know, to execute the war, um, our mission. Um, and then, you know, being in the Air Force Special Operations community, we are very well equipped to the Air Force Special Operations community. Um, you know, we get everything that we need, uh, pretty much. Um and then to come, uh, you know, do the, the RIF exchange. And uh, when we got to, um, to Kuwait, the squadron showed up and there was nothing there for us. <laughs> uh, you know, there was a, uh, a Royal Air Force or a tornado squadron that was there. And um, our squadron boss went over to talk to them to see what kind of support we could get. And basically, he was told that uh, we're not part of the same uh, operation uh, right now. So uh, I really can't give you anything. So luckily, yeah. So we were really, we were sat there on uh, Kuwaiti Air Force Base, um, without tents or anything. And, um, luckily the United States Marine Corps was there. Uh, they had one of the mags there and, um, uh, Marine air groups and, uh, the, uh, our squadron boss, uh, Paul Lyle went over and, um, and talked to the Marines and they gave us tents, cots, um, food, everything that they could. Uh, and it was fantastic and they really took really very good care of us so so that was a you know that was a great uh a great story there with that but but again the royal air force um you know uh we called it uh, self-help you know on the squadron you know it was like you know just just you know whatever uh just go get it done beg borrow and steal whatever you could to, uh, to make it make it happen um so yeah that's a little bit of the the uk military i think as well because I, You know, you guys, fantastic professionals, um, incredible pilots, but the UK military is just not well equipped.
0: <laughs> yeah. One of my friends, went, He's, uh, I think he's got almost 20 years now. He ended up being a SEER instructor and a, I think a parachute instructor as well. But yeah, he was, he was talking like one of the things that he was assigned to because he was a PTI, I think, if I got that right. And so he was assigned to protect a gym and a swimming pool out in the middle east somewhere and then i think some of the the barracks and this is the air force which is supposed to be better than you know the army and the navy um i mean these buildings are just falling apart and so you know Uh you see these men and women with their polished boots and their uniforms and you assume that that's what everything in their life looks like but a lot of the the stories i hear it's not that case at all
1: yeah when they finally sent the squadron uh to basra after we had secured basra um we were we were based our uh, building in a bombed out building on Basra Airport. I mean half the building was you know a timber and and you know just burnt out rooms and stuff. We were on the on the one part that didn't get burned out. So it probably should have been condemned but there we were. <laughs> <You know. laughs> You know, being built in that building, so it's pretty crazy.
0: All right, well, I've kind of jumped way ahead, so I would love to start at the very beginning because you have a very interesting career in aviation. So, tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings.
1: Uh, so I was born um, uh, on Long Island, New York, um, in Bay Shore. Um, let's see, my uh, my dad. At that time, he wasn't working for the phone company at that time. I think he was working for Grumman. Um, but um, I just got married. My, my dad got married uh, when he was 20. Um, my mom was 18, um, just, just out of high school. And uh, she was killed in a car accident when I was six months old. Um, I, we were all in the car. It was a drunk driver. Um, killed my mom. And then um, after that, I was, we moved back in with uh, my grandmother and my step-grandfather and uh, basically lived with them. And then my uncle was there too, because he had just gotten back from Vietnam several years, probably about three or four years before that. Um, Well, actually in 68, no, he got back in 68 because he was wounded in 68. So he lived in the house too, and he, he was severely wounded. And I really credit my uncle for um, getting me interested in aviation and uh, and the military, too, um, even though he had a very, very um, bad experience in Vietnam. Uh, he was partially paralyzed on the left side of his body. He was you know, blind in his left eye, pretty much um, had steel plates in his head, suffered from severe PTSD. Um, he was an infantryman, M60 gunner, um, big dude, <laughs> great dude. And uh, he used to build me airplane models and, uh, and he would, he would not, he wouldn't talk about, you know, he, he was a patriot still. I mean, even after all that, he loved his country and, uh, and really got me interested in the military. Um, all my grandfathers, my step-grandfather, everybody was uh, in the military. My other uh, mom's brother-in-law. Sorry, um, he was uh, he was in uh, Vietnam also, but he was a uh, he was in finance, so he really didn't see uh, see any comment. But uh, but anyway, so there was a lot of military uh, in the family. Um, and then growing up there with my uncle um, and my dad and my grandparents. And it really, it was my grandparents that uh, raised me for pretty much first six years of my life. I mean, I can't imagine what my dad went through being a twenty-year-old widower. <laughs> you know, uh, just trying to uh, to get his life back together. Um so uh, so my grandparents took you know the bulk of that um uh of raising me uh, during that time frame. Um and uh you know they would take me on trips to Florida and my grandmother and grandfather had a uh, uh basically a uh, motor home down there in um in Florida that we would go down to and we would spend the summers and things like that. So um overall, you know um i i credit them for a lot of what i became you know in the future as well so my dad got remarried when um i was about six six or seven um and uh my stepmom uh and my dad uh you know they bought a house uh a couple towns over uh we were pretty close to my grandparents so i still saw them all the time and would go over on the weekends and spend time with them um my dad worked uh then uh, eventually worked for the uh, uh for a t and t uh basically um you know, um, which was at time, I think it was New York, New York Telephone or NY Bell or something like that, which was like ATT. AT&T. Um, he was a lineman, uh, you know, basically doing, um, you know, working, uh, you know, putting lines up on poles, um, you know, doing that kind of thing, home installations, that kind of thing, wiring and stuff like that. Um, he spent shoot, uh, pretty much his whole life doing that job. Um, my stepmom didn't work, um, you know, well, she had we had uh, my stepbrother, uh, came along, or step, not stepbrother, but my half brother came along, uh, shortly after, um, we moved over to, uh, in the East Islip. Um, yeah. So I had a little brother, um, about, I'm seven years older than him. Uh, we don't really talk too much anymore. Um, but, uh, but it was pretty good uh, growing up there. I had a pretty good childhood. Um, you know, one of those, uh, New York, uh, suburban, suburban neighborhoods where, you know, we would have, uh, you know football games in the street we'd have like you know 12 kids uh you know playing football or we'd get baseball games together or you know there was always something going on um and this was you know during the 70s early 80s where we would just get on our bikes in the summertime and leave the house at eight o'clock uh in the morning and not get back until six o'clock for dinner you know in the afternoon is that kind of thing so it was that was great uh, in a lot of respects <laughs> you know uh great childhood that way uh, then I had a step or a half sister came along. Um, I'm about, what about 11, 12 years apart. So pretty good, big, big gap there. We never really, uh, you know, hung out when I left for the, uh, um, for the army, uh, she was only, shoot, but seven or eight years old or six years old, something like that. So she was pretty young. So we were never really that close. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So that was, you know, basically my childhood. I never, I, Always wanted to be a pilot from the time I was a kid because of my based my uncle building the airplanes, and I got really interested in airplanes and aviation. The problem, you know, for me was growing up is I, I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to get there, kind of thing, you know. And uh, so I'm in high school. Um, I was looking at going to an aeronautical college, uh, possibly going to Ember Riddle. Um, I don't know if anybody, you've heard of that one, but it's a big aviation college in Florida. But I really didn't think that uh, I don't think I was ready. <laughs> You know, I just thought I was a little bit too immature at that time. And uh, I wasn't really ready for college life. Um, I thought I would uh, uh, wouldn't do well. And I didn't really have the money to do it either. So uh, so I started looking at the military and I figured I would would always be in the military, at least for, you know, a four year stint or something like that, just because the rest of my family, most of the family had done it. You know, I just felt like I needed to serve, too. So I started looking at the recruiters. I went to the uh, Air Force recruiter first. Because, oh, airplanes, you know, <laughs> go, go be a jet mechanic or something like that, right? Go do something around around, uh, around jets. Um, he said, yeah, we can make you a jet mechanic. And so I go, okay. I went to the Navy. Navy said the same thing. Yeah, we'll make you a jet mechanic. When's the Marine Corps? Yeah, okay, we can make you a jet or a helicopter mechanic. Okay, yeah, got it, got it. I figured, well, I might as well try the Army. My uncle Actually, all my family at that point was in the Army. So I figured I'll give it a try see what they say. So I sat down with a recruiter. And uh, his name is Sergeant Sanders. Um, He's an E6 uh, staff sergeant. And uh, I said, okay, I I laid it down with him up front. I go, look, I went to all the other services. They said they could make me a uh, mechanic of some sort on either airplanes or helicopters. And that's what I want to do. I go, what do you have to offer? He goes, well, right now we're looking for Chinook mechanics and uh, I can make you a Chinook mechanic. I go, okay, well, I don't know. I'd rather almost go work on F-15s or something in the Air Force. That sounds a little bit more interesting. He goes, but I can make you a pilot maybe too. I go, go, well, I don't have a degree. And he goes, you don't need a degree to be a pilot in the Army. We have a thing called a warrant officer. I never heard of warrant officers. And uh, you just need a high school diploma. So I was like, all right, you got me, man. I go, how does this work? (laughs) And he goes, uh, well, you got to enlist first. And uh, well, you know, unless you as a Chinook mechanic and then while you're waiting on delayed entry program, because this was, like I said, between in the summer between my junior and senior year. So I still had a, a year of high school to go. So I said, OK, uh, that sounds good. So I signed up. He went through the whole process and, you know, got me all my appointments for my boards and my physicals and the tests and everything he put in my packet. And this was like probably September just before I was going back to school or maybe I was still uh, just getting back into school. And he's like, all right, well, the board meets next month and we'll find out. So in November, um, he knocks on the door, uh, of my, my dad's house and uh, our house. And, um, he's like, Hey Bill, I got some good news for you, man. I go, he goes, uh, you got picked up for flight school. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was still 17, man. I'm like, you gotta be shitting me, dude. <laughs> so, uh, so, um, yeah, so, yeah, so, um, he's like, and it, he even said, he goes, because uh, I've never, I've never had anybody get picked up for flight school. And he goes, I didn't think you were going to get picked up, honestly. <laughs> so,
0: thanks for your honesty, fucker. I go, <laughs> <laughs> I go, yeah, I go, I'm
1: like, all right, well, thanks, Jordan Sanders. I got to give him credit because really, I mean, he didn't have to put in the effort that he had to, because, you know, he doesn't get really credit for, um, for getting a, a guy to go to flight school. You know, his big thing is, you know, getting guys to enlist. So he really did put a pretty good effort in, you know, even though he didn't think I was going to make it, he still, he still put in the effort, man. So I thought that was pretty cool. So,
0: so you had to, you had to finish the year of high school knowing that you had that waiting for you.
1: Yes. That must have, yeah. that must
0: have been hard with that mindset going through all those classes, knowing damn well you had this dream <laughs> career just waiting for you in the back end.
1: I, uh, I partied pretty hard man. <laughs> <laughs> I only had the pass. I mean, cause it was, I just had to pass high school. I mean, I didn't have to, you know, be the the number one guy in uh, in the class. So um, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was difficult to maintain the focus on, uh, you know, all the classes I was taking. And, and of course just was partying my ass off. So, which was one of the reasons I didn't go to college because <laughs> I probably departed my ass off in college too. So, but, uh, but, you know, I'm glad I did what I did because it really, you know, it, if you're not focused when you go into the army, you go to basic training and you start flight school. You will be focused really fast. Uh, you know, let's put it that way. <laughs> so, uh, so it, it really drew drew my focus into my future and uh, and, and a career. So, so just good.
0: going back to your uncle for a second, you ended up you serving in multiple you know arenas yourself. When right. I talk to all these different people from all these different, you know, generations, I think there's a facade that the World War II generation were, were welcome to a ticker tape parade, something I bought into, and then you start hearing these stories, and like, yeah, some were. New York City, mm. after a big ship comes in, absolutely, but there were a lot right. that went home to the Midwest, and no one said anything. But the right. Vietnam era, every single person I have from that, um, you know, that, con- that conflict, excuse me, it's horrendous the stories of them coming home so he came home you know very very badly wounded with the 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 physical impact the mental impact did you kind of either see then or analyze after the the reception his generation got when they came home and how that factored into his mental health after that
1: yeah i think that uh i think it's apparent um you know when you see the uh the the Footage of you know people calling Vietnam veterans "baby killers" and that it's, and even though I, I didn't see that, you know, I was fairly young at the time. You know, going in early mid seventies, uh, I don't remember that happening. I remember where I lived was fairly patriotic, even though you know you think of New York, you think of you know, you, you know the New York liberals and you know they're all anti anti military anti war, but. Um, I mean, I grew up in the suburbs I mean everybody was pretty much working class, so I don't think that we really had that where where I was and I didn't see him experience that personally. It probably did happen though I would imagine um at, but he would never he would never talk about it he, you know he's he's passed away now uh for a couple of years, but um he never talked about that with me that aspect um and it wasn't until after um Probably in the going towards the late 90s, especially after the rescue um, of Hammer three four, he actually started to open up about his combat experiences in Vietnam um, I think because you know he could he knew he could because we though I wasn't you know in anything nearly as horrific as he was in, um I think he knew that you know uh, again anybody who's been shot at, you know, has been in combat, has experienced that kind of stress, you can relate to what they're going through. Um, you know, um, even though, you know, I never was never wounded, was never shot, um, you know, didn't have go through anything near what he went through as an infantryman. <laughs> but, uh, but I think he felt that, you know, that he could open up to me at that point. And he started to tell me about, you know, the, some of his, uh, the, the engagements he was, he was in. Um, he talked about, you know, uh, the day he, he was, he was actually wounded several times, but, uh, but the day he, you know, was severely wounded when he came home, basically, um, a, a hand grenade, uh, went off basically right next to him. And that, and that's what, uh, um, you know, sent him home. Um, and he talked about that day and, you know, he talked about the, 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 what, what the, the scene looked like, you know, being in a small, it almost like a small valley and. Um, and he really got very detailed and graphic on the whole thing. And, uh, but I was appreciative that he trusted me and to sit there and listen to the story and that I could understand, you know, basically what he was talking about, you know, to a certain extent, you know, so.
0: So I'm going to jump ahead for a second in your timeline, because I think it ties in well, you now volunteer with the World War II Aviation Museum. So... I think one resounding theme. There was a there was a really powerful moment in a UFC MMA fight about two days ago, and there's uh, a British guy. that was in London, um, and after he won, made this very emotional speech. He just found out the day before that one of his closest friends had killed himself. And so he talks about, you know, men, you know, what we got the stigma about being able to reach out, you know, if you've got weight on your shoulders, you know, we need to talk to each other. I'd rather, you know, have you cry on my shoulder than than go to your funeral, which I'm going to next week. And it was just a real like knife through the heart. But right. like you just touched on, a lot of times I hear responders or veterans that are sat in front of a counselor, for example, who's not culturally competent, and it actually makes it worse so when a firefighter opens up, other firefighters are able to then be vulnerable and talk to each other. So talk to me about the experience that you've had at the museum with all these different veterans from all these different generations talking to you under that roof.
1: Yeah, I, mean, um, I think it's just the the environment at the museum. You've got all of these World War II airplanes around. You've got all of these displays with scenes of combat and stories of combat. And I think it really starts to bring bring that back out to, to a, lot of, a lot of guys. Um, and not everybody, you know, um, but, you know, there's there's a few that start to, um, especially I think some of the uh, the older guys, the Vietnam vets, the uh, Korean vets, um, you know, uh, and <laughs> World War II vets. Um, talking about, you know, Navy vets talking about, you know, when their ship was attacked by uh, kamikazes, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it's just that, you know, that environment there that that brings it, brings it all out to them. And they, I don't know, I, I guess um, when they're talking about it, um, I, not a lot of them get real emotional. It's just sort of, they're just, bringing out this story, this trauma, and obviously the trauma that they went through, but they, a lot of, most of them do it in kind of a matter of fact kind of way. Um, You know, and, and I think in a lot of respects that, that helps them. And you'll see some of them, you know, well, most of them are there with family members and their family members are kind of taken aback and, you know, wow, he's, he's opening up about this here, you know? And I, and I think that's, I think it's therapeutic for them, you know, and I'm glad to, to listen, I'm glad, and, and everybody when they start talking, everybody kind of draws in and starts listening to those stories, which is which is uh, which is amazing. And I think it you know it help hopefully it helps them, and I think it maybe um, well I know it does it helps the family too because not a lot of the families you know sometimes the family's like I, I didn't know that you know what I mean, um, so I think it helps them deal with you know their it looks a lot of more children when all this happened, and it helps them deal with. Um, you know what their what their parent or father or grandfather or somebody went through right so
0: yeah i got um, to witness that actually at patriot's point in um south carolina i think was it that one no i'm sorry it was um galveston texas there was uh um one of the ships that my father-in-law was on back in, in vietnam era um, and so, again, you know, it was fascinating watching his eyes light up. And he, I mean, he, you know, what he's seeing is this ship full of men and all these aircraft taken off. And, you know, we're just seeing this, you know, this museum uh, moored to a dock. But uh, yeah, I mean, he just started reliving it. And I think that's such a resounding theme over and over and over again is our generation was raised on this complete facade that men are stoic and you know nothing bothers you and stiff up a lip and all this stuff and it's absolute bullshit and you mm-hmm. you know i always yeah. point to the band of brothers the real men of easy company that speak during that series you can see raw emotion and they're some of the most heroic warriors that we've had of you know of modern day so yeah it's so important that we create environments for these men and women to open up because, I mean, we all carry trauma. Some may be just being a middle child and feeling unloved and some may be losing four limbs in combat. But the the point is that if we're buying into this environment that stops people from talking, we are directly um, contributing to their mental ill health or even suicide.
1: Right, right. No, exactly, exactly. And I think it's one of those difficult things to do because uh, you, you can't just, like you said, you can't, I don't think you can just go talk to a therapist. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think that's the right environment. And it, it's just odd where some, you know, I think the the environment and the timing and maybe the personalities involved just have to be just right, you know, with some people in order to, trigger a response or wanting to be able to talk about these things. You know what I mean? You can't, you can't manufacture it. You know what I mean? You you can't just say, Hey, we're going to make this place. And you know, people are just going to come in and start open up and start talking. Um, I, I don't, that's not, that's not a thing. (laughs) <laughs> no, we have
0: a thing called CISD, which is right after a critical incident, and it's you know it's like a Russian roulette. Which one even gets one of those? Um, right, but right. you know, right after an event where you've been in that flow state and you've had to have that stoicism when you're actually doing a job, a lot of times that's not the time when they're ready to to open up. They haven't even processed it yet. So the the peer element, you know, having the vulnerability in a fire station and a police station and a dispatch center, whatever it is to allow people to open up when they're ready. I think that's the real key.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the military for for years, and I, I actually was never involved in this, but uh, you know, when you came back from theater, they had those decompression, uh, decompression time where they would send you to a military base and you would be isolated for a week or two weeks or something. Like I said, I never experienced it, but you know, talking to guys that went through it, it was like, it was, it was even more stressful because, you know, now you're in the States, you're confined to this, you know, you're basically in a, in a, in a mini prison, uh, your family, you know, is, you know, hours away. Um, but you're stuck here. And then I think that's, that's even worse, right. You know, so well, we don't want to go back to the family, but, uh, I think most guys do want to get back to their family and get back to the ones who, who, you know, their loved ones as opposed to being confined. I don't think, what what does that confinement do? What does it, it, does it really decompress you? What you just went through is two weeks of decompression going to solve all of those problems, (laughs) you know, or, or you know, make that all come out and be better now? No, it's not, man. It's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, when it goes back, I think, to some of the box checking, I mean, it may be coming from a good place, but it's not, Thought out the right way, and it's interesting if you watch the film Restrepo, um, Sebastian Junger. When those men and women—excuse me, those men in that case—are fighting in the Corongo Valley, they're you know literally about to be murdered pretty much every moment of that whole you know film is shot, and their spirits are up and they're you know mentally in a good place. It's when they um, demob in Italy that all the stuff starts coming through. And I think I think there's an element of isolation. I don't think they all went there as a group. So I get, you know, a slow boat trip with the same men and women that you serve with, as you transition back home, that would have a good element. But like you said, if it's isolation in a forced forced isolation way where you're already in the country where your family are, that doesn't right. sound like it's been thought out the same way as maybe a natural kind of coming back from war storytelling de-escalation prior to being dad, brother, husband right. again.
1: Right. Or, you know, I don't know. And again, I'm no expert on this stuff, but, you know, maybe go back and have a facility where, okay, maybe, maybe I have to stay there, but maybe the families come in, you know, so that you can be with your families and, you know, um, <laughs> And obviously maybe decompress with a few beers, you know, maybe in the extreme where guys are, you know, again, you know, completely shit faced, but, uh, but, you know, but that's what I did when, sometimes when I came back, you know, spend some time with the family and then, uh, you know, okay, get together with some buds and just, you know, just get shit faced, you know, and, and, you know, and talk about what we just went through, you know, and I think that, that kind of helped maybe more than, you know, freaking getting stuck in a barracks somewhere and being told that I, I don't even know if those guys could, could even have alcohol or, or sit, sit back and, you know, kick back with a beer or something like that. You know, I, I'm not even sure how that even that worked. Um, but, uh, but I'm sure it was, it was probably more stressful <laughs> than anything else. Yeah. You know?
0: Well, going back to your journey into the military then, so you finished high school, I'm assuming you entered the, uh, you know, the the pilot program. So walk me through, yeah, the first couple of positions, well, the training in the first couple of positions, I'm really interested to hear about the radiological and nuclear element that you found yourself in, and if that factored <laughs> in to some of the so-called threats that you ended up responding to in Iraq. Uh,
1: yeah, no, no um, well, okay, we will go back here. So um, the process at the time, I'm not sure, I'm, I'm sure that, that it's probably still somewhat the same, but... Um, if you're coming straight into the military to go to flight school, you had to go to basic training first. So I went to basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey as an E1, uh, as a private and went through the whole basic training thing. Um, and there were, I think four of us in my basic training company who were all going to go to flight school. So, um, at least I could like talk to somebody like, Hey, do you know what we're getting into and all this kind of stuff, you know, in the future here? And, you know, we kind of, kind of hung out a little bit together. Um, but yeah, but it was it was straight up basic training, man. And it was uh that was an eye-opener for me. Um being, you know, this dumbass high school kid from uh from Long Island, <laughs> all of a sudden I gotta and you know, this wasn't uh the days where you get a timeout. You know, I had drill sergeants, you know, punch me in the gut a couple of times, and uh I had you know, drill sergeants screaming. And well, both ears sometimes, you know, just yelling at me, you know, to do more pushups, or uh, you know, or or I'm I'm lazy, worthless, and weak, that kind of thing. But uh, but it did, you know, I did grow up pretty quick um, there, and I'm 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 grateful for that, you know. Um, and then went to flight school, so that was Fort Dix, New Jersey, was basic. Then went down to uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, uh, which is the home of U.S. Army Aviation. Uh, where they have uh, um, all the uh, training and schools down there. Um, Back in the day you went in and uh, you were a warrant officer candidate um, throughout the entire program until you graduated. And uh, we had to go through what was called the warrant officer entry course at the time, which was basically um, basic training on crack. Um, it was really, really intense. Um, they were trying to, you know, discipline us for attention to detail. Um, so we had our a cubicle set up and they came out with rulers and everything was measured. Um, precisely all of your, uh, hangers had to be exactly, um, you know, so far apart, uh, your socks had to be rolled, uh, to something about that big and it had to be exactly this wide. And, um, for, yeah, for, for an 18 year old kid, it was insane. <laughs> so, um, I, uh, I got through that. Um, and at the time this was during the, you know, the Reagan buildup years. Uh, so there were, uh, you know, my class had what, 35 guys in it. And we were, we had, um, basically what a class a month, uh, going through. Uh, so they was just cranking out helicopter pilots, uh, at the time. and um so uh, after you finished warrant officer entry course, there were a little bit backlogged. So you spent uh, a couple of months as a warrant officer candidate um, on, um, uh, basically you were on like a, you know, uh, limited duty kind of thing where you were just going around base and, you know, paint rocks and cutting grass. And, you know, luckily, hopefully you got a job in an office somewhere. Maybe you were taking notes during meetings, which is kind of funny because they put me in the, uh, the direct, of combat development, and uh, I was just like the warner officer that they just stuck, warner's candidate they stuck there, so they're trying to figure out what to do with me. And I remember sitting in on this, you know, high level, you know, meeting. They're talking about uh, combat development and tactics and future plans and blah blah. And I'm supposed to be taking notes, and about I mean, you know, we were getting our asses kicked as, as candidates, so I'm i uh, I'm falling asleep. And at one point, I started snoring. <laughs> I got this this colonel looking at me like, you know, candidate, <laughs> you know, trying to have a meeting here, and you're supposed to be fucking taking notes. And uh, so I got my ass chewed for that, but uh, <laughs> but uh, made me uh, uh, made me wake up, uh, to say the least. Um, but we kind of did that, and then you start uh, start flight training. Um, the way they do it nowadays is after you finish a warrant officer entry course, you become a warrant officer immediately, and then you can go live off base. You can live in uh, a BOQ on base, and there's none of the stress as you go through flight school. Back then, um, when we started flying the TH 55, uh, which is a little, uh, two seat mm-hmm. piston helicopter, um, we were, we had to go back in the evenings and we still had to do a lot of the stuff we were doing in ward entry course. We had to get our displays all squared away. If you had too many demerits, you had to be out, uh, in the, uh, in the square walking disciplinary tour for an hour. So you couldn't study <laughs> aircraft systems or, or anything that had to do with flying. You were out walking in a circle in the, in the courtyard. Um, so, uh, so we did that through, that was the second phase, basically, of flight school, Bravo company. Then when you finished TH-55s, which was primary and finished all that, then you moved on to Charlie Company. And they, they relaxed things uh, quite a bit uh, there. Um, you still had to maintain some standards, but they were kind of relaxed at that point. Uh, but you were still a Warren office candidate. You still had to live in, in the barracks and, and do all that kind of stuff and go through um, your flight training. At the time, um, I was, uh, well, most of the training was done either on uh, Jet Rangers, or H 58s or was done on Hueys. Um, I wound up going, uh, being Huey track. Um, and, uh, and eventually, after graduation, um, got an assignment to fly Hueys in Germany um, after that. But, uh, but, I mean, you know, as far as experience for me, um, being at 18 and then I turned 19 um, when I was in flight school, um, yeah, I was, <laughs> I got, I got through, let's just put it that way. I was not number one in my class by any, by any means, but, uh, I was just happy to be an army aviator at that point, man. So, um, so here I was, uh, uh, a W1 going to Germany at 19 and I had just, so I got to Germany in de- just after Christmas in December of 87 and, uh, I was, um, I billeting. I had a BOQ at Robinson Barracks in Stuttgart. Um, anybody out there who knows where that is? And uh, so I'm up at the BX at the at the Burger King, and uh, there's this uh, this this old crusty old um, E7 sergeant first class behind me in line, and uh, he looks down at me. He goes, he's like, uh, Chief, how the hell old are you? <laughs> I go, uh, uh, I'm a i am I just turned 20, sir. Uh, he goes, well, I didn't call him Sargo, Sergeant. And he goes, uh, he goes, he goes, God damn, you guys keep on getting younger and younger, man. And uh, you know, he just sh- shook his head. And uh, but it was funny though, you know, cause we were just, just, you know, kids in flight suits, you know, flying helicopters around. It was pretty crazy.
0: I know that you, you graduated there, but I'm in, intrigued about this position with the nuclear and radiology. Um, um, yeah. 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 Because, you know, as, Fast forward, you know, I guess a decade or so, we go into Iraq. We're told that there are certain things, but from an aviation point of view, what did that look like? That kind of specialty.
1: Well, the, I mean, really, it was it was just an extra duty um, within the company, because every you know, a company had a nuclear biology and chemical officer. I just happened to be. The new kid on the block who came in and it was a job that nobody wanted to do. So it's like let's give it to the the next W one that comes in comes into the company. Uh, so you know I got there, I did some uh, you know indoctrination to Germany and that kind of thing. And um, one of the interesting things about indoctrination at that point um, in time during the Cold War, and, and you know it was going into 1988, the we didn't know that the Cold War would be over within, like, what, two years at that point. Um, So when, you know, the the, the Warsaw Pact was a real thing. And uh, during our indoctrination, um, all the uh, new officers, warrant officers and commission officers were sent to a border town up on the the border with, um, I want to say it was the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia at the time. And they took, we were in a bus, they stopped the bus, we all got out and there was a river. And over the other side of the river, there was a Czech uh, town with guard towers, barbed wire walls. You could see, you know, Czech communist, you know, troops, I'm sure that they weren't diehard communists, but, um, you know, sitting there on the on the walls, you know, uh, they told us, hey, do not, you can't take pictures, you can't point. Just stand there and there's your enemy right there kind of thing. And uh, that was that was an eye opener. You know, Um, that's why we're here. And um, at the time, there was a book. um, uh, What Was it Um, Red Storm Rising uh, by Tom Clancy? I don't know if you've ever read that one. It's a uh, um, it's a book about um, the Soviets. The Warsaw Pact comes over the border um, and invades Germany. And um, so here I am, brand new W-1. I just saw the, the enemy over there. Um, I'm about to go to nuclear chemical, you know, training uh, for the company. And I read this book and I'm like, holy crap. I mean, it was, it's a really good book when it you know, talks about warfare at that time, what it would have been like. And you just go, wow, man, this is going to be ugly. <laughs> this is going to be really ugly if they decide to come down to fold the Folder gap. And um, so, so all that was going on. And then they say, you're going to be a nuclear biological chemical warfare officer for the company. Okay. And um, again, you know, you go through the training. I guess maybe I was a little bit too gung ho. (laughs) I know some of my buddies weren't very happy with me because when I got back, I was like, okay, we're going to the gas chamber, you know, where you go to the CS chamber, you put your masks on. And, um, and uh, because I want to check everybody's, you know, seals, make sure everybody was good to go. They had proper equipment and all that stuff. Um, they just saw it as, Bill, why the hell are you making us go to the damn gas chamber? Um, but uh, like, all right, we got to do this, guys. So um, and I, uh, I also um, so we had these little drinking straws. I don't remember uh, or if you've ever seen the, the gas kind of time where you could hook up into your canteen and take a drink. Well, as we were going through t- training, they're like, well, what if that tube is broken and uh, you're going to have to take a drink somehow? So I, I told the guys i come like, in the gas chamber, I go, all right, so get your canteen. I said. We're going to drink, and um, but you can't drink through your tube. You gotta, you're going to have to break your seal, drink, and then reseal your mask uh, in the CS chamber. And uh, they wanted to fucking kill me.
0: <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, but most everybody, I remember there was only one dude. I mean, we had, what, a company, I don't know, maybe that day we had about 35, 40, um, you know, crew chiefs, pilots uh, going through this. And, uh, only one dude, um, who went to go take a drink, um, actually inhaled <laughs> when he did that and just, you know, the whole CS thing, you know, I don't know if you've ever been through that, but, um, but yeah, but everybody else was like, Oh, holy crap. Oh, I guess I can take a, break my seal, take a drink or whatever, and then reseal and, and be fine, you know? So, uh, so it was interesting training. Um, but, uh, we also did, you know, um, I had to set up uh, decontamination, um, you know, points where, you know, you'd take, uh, we had a brigade exercise, we were all went up to Swabish Hall and, you know, each company had to demonstrate that we could, with my team, set up a decontamination site and run people through the decontamination site. We had aircraft decontamination where we had, a, um, you know, a line set up and you would have aircraft come through and you'd basically spray down the aircraft and while they're running, and you know, basically decontaminate the aircraft, and then get them out the other side of the line, that kind of thing. So, and we did all of that kind of stuff because, you know, we pretty much thought that the Russians were going to use chemical weapons, biological weapons, and I think they definitely would have used tactical nuclear weapons uh, had they come over the, the border at that time. So, it was something that needed to be done. Now, if you want flash, flashing forward to to Iraq later on when it's talking about chemical weapons, well, let me back up. So. I went to Desert Storm from Germany and I was the um, NBC officer for the company when we were there. And obviously we, there was a, a chemical threat from Saddam. So we had, um, you know, things set up in the company. We had our detectors put out and all that stuff. Um, of course, <laughs> you know, the army being the army. So I'm the NBC officer It's probably a pretty you know, good, uh, um, good reason to have me around the company. Um, they said, "Hey, Bill, we're sending you off to go fly, <laughs> to be detached to this uh, to Seventh Corps headquarters to a general officer," and uh, and I left. And I don't know. I like, my buddies were like, well, "How do we work this shit?" You know, <laughs> like, trying to show them how to work the detectors and stuff. I'm like, "All right, dudes, I got to go, man. See you. Good luck," <laughs> kind of thing, you know. And then went off to uh, go fly this general around. So, but uh, but that's the way the military works, right? <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: Now what about the the actual threat? I mean I remember from way way back there was chemical Ali for example who was you know one of the masterminds behind you know poisoning a lot of the Iraqi people. Right
1: right. With right.
0: you know with with again not not politicizing any any way shape or form but what were the the chemical and or nuclear threats that you saw of your time in the Middle East?
1: Um I actually didn't see any. Um especially nuclear threats, but uh, definitely no Um, chemical threats when I was there, during Desert Storm, well, the lead-up Desert Shield, Desert Storm, when the Scuds were being launched um, south into uh, Saudi and Kuwait, well, actually they were in Kuwait, into Saudi, um, every time there was a a Scud alert, um, we were running to the bunker with our chemical gear, and, you know, we did because we didn't know. We, We didn't know what was going on, whether he would actually do it or not. Um, there was obviously a threat because he used chemical weapons. Well, both sides did during the Iran-Iraq war. Um, they used uh, mustard gas and, and nerve agent during those. So we thought, well, for sure, if he's staring down the barrel of uh, this giant coalition force that for sure, he's going to launch some sort of chemical attack um, uh, on, uh, on our forces. So it was real for us. I mean, we, like I said, we, ran to the bunkers and, um, where our battalion first got set up before I went off and did my thing. Um, we had a Patriot, um, missile battery fairly close by. So every time there was a, uh, a scuttler, um, you know, you'd get Patriots launching, <laughs> which are fucking loud, man, when they're, when they're that close. So, uh, it was, uh, you know, something like, Holy shit, you know, this is, this is real. And we might be getting, you know, chemical weapon or, you know, nerve agent or mustard gas, you know, thrown on us right now, who the hell knows, you know, so.
0: When I hear the word scud, I, in the back of mind, remember that you said, they were aimed south, but they'd end up landing west. Were they as inaccurate as the reports they were told very us? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, very, very, very inaccurate. But there was, I don't know if you remember, there was a scud that hit the, uh, um, the docks, was it Dharan? Um, and uh, killed a couple dozen uh, soldiers. Uh, down there on the docks. So, um, you know, every once in a while, you know, squirrel finds a nut man and you know um, they got lucky, but for the most part, yeah, they were just tossing scuds out in the desert. And um, you know, I never, never had one land anywhere near us, but you know, so, but you never know (laughs) at that time. You don't know, man, the hindsight. Yeah. That was, that was kind of silly. We were worried about those damn scuds, but at the time you're like, Holy shit, (laughs) you know, You know, there's a there's a patriot just launched, you know,
0: shit. So uh, while I'm on the topic, something that I always pose people who are being deployed forward to combat. um, When we, especially here in the US, we get a very polarized view of war. You know, it's either very pro-war, kill them all, let God sort them out, or it's very anti-war, like you talked about, baby killers. But the real stories, you know, the men and women that were deployed, regardless of the politics that sent them there, are the voices that we actually need to be listening to. So it's a two-part question. Obviously, you've got a slightly different perspective because you were, you know, up in the air a lot. But were there any moments, where, you know, whatever country you were in, where you realized that there were just horrible people that needed to be taken care of in that particular battlefield that you were on?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, for, for Desert Storm, um we, you know, we heard all the stories and some of them wound up not being true in the end where, you know, when Saddam's forces came into Kuwait, that they were uh, was it, there was that one story about the uh, the children's hospital where they were ripping babies out of incubators and, and, and things, which actually wound up not being true. Um, so it's, you know, I guess it's it's hard to figure out with the way the media is and with the way you know the government's kind of try to motivate us to go do things uh what is the truth you know um and this goes back to so i got to participate in the storm and you know we had the invasion and then flash forward to um 2005. um i'm training the iraqi air force and (laughs) most of the guys that i was training were helicopter pilots. Under Saddam, and that most of them were old, were older guys, and uh, most of them um, were, participated in Desert Storm, and uh, you know, or uh, the the invasion of Kuwait, and um, it, it was it was surreal talking to these guys because one of the guys, you know, sitting down, we're having some chai, and you know, we're we're sitting here bullshitting, and uh, he goes, "Oh yes, I was, I was a, um, I was a MiA pilot." um you know when we uh when we um how do you put it when uh we uh we invaded kuwait and we sent you running the americans running in fear and i was like what are you talking about he goes well when you you were in Ku- you you americans were in kuwait when we invaded and we saw you running south because you were afraid of us i'm like okay dude i go <laughs> we weren't there you were watching the Kuwaitis run, but there weren't, weren't Americans running south and just, you know, trying to explain to him how we weren't. He, he didn't believe it, though. He, he would not believe me. He would not believe me that, you know, there were no Americans in Kuwait when they invaded. And um, and I tried to tell him, you know, because we, we know about this when they invaded. So the Iraqis um, wound up crashing several uh, dozens of helicopters when they invaded um, because they uh, they came in before sunrise and they didn't have NVGs, they didn't have night flying any kind of night flying skills or 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 training um so they were like basically coming into uh, kuwait on these air assaults on these mi you know russian helicopters and just crashing them all over the desert and apparently they crashed like 30 or 40 helicopters (laughs) in the invasion you know and i tried to you know talk to him about that and he's like oh no 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 no, 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 This did this did not happen, you know, kind of thing. You know, it's kind of funny. So, yeah, I guess going back, I mean, that's you know, every country has got its propaganda. It's you know, directing towards its troops on, you know, and and he thought, you know, I guess you know from his perspective that the invasion of Kuwait was the right thing, you know, that that they were maybe being oppressed by us or or or, or something like that. But uh, but he he was all you know all for it, man, <laughs> you know.
0: So. See, that's what fascinates me with this Ukraine thing at the moment. I understand, again, I mean, there's always tyrants behind a lot of these. Some of them, those tyrants are in the UK and Australia and the US. I mean, we, we all have them. Um, but how do you get the Russian people, the average Russian soldier, to buy into the invasion of another country when you yourself are from such a giant landmass? That you, the average person, are not benefiting anything from that. And That's the part that I, I struggle to understand.
1: Right. Yeah. No. I I, I think about the same thing, and uh, I, I, you know, obviously we don't know what the propaganda is like over there. Um, from what I've I've read and some of the things that I've heard, that uh, you know these soldiers, uh, the, the 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 conscripts, or uh, you know, the, I guess something. Are they a volunteer force or not? I'm not even sure if uh, the Russians are a volunteer.
0: I'm not um, sure yeah, I'm very uneducated on that yeah, that topic.
1: yeah. but from what I understand that uh, um, they're getting sent into Ukraine with very little information and some of them with only the most basic of training um, in military operations. and that's I think that's why they're not faring so well. you know um, From what I heard that uh, you know when the whole thing kicked off, they were telling the troops, that, um, you know, it uh, was a training exercise.
0: I' would heard the same and thing. The
1: next thing they know, they're, you know, why are these people shooting at us in this training exercise, you know kind of thing. And that's what I've heard. Again, you know, who knows what the what the ground truth is. But you know, uh, having, you know, being a docent at the Museum of World Aviation doing that whole thing, um, I've uh, you know recently been very, very into World War II and looking at the history. And um, you know, watching a couple of YouTube uh, channels that are, are, have a really good uh, World War II timeline, uh, really good series. And um, and the Rus- that was what the Russians did in World War II. They basically you know conscripted all these guys and just you know mass waves of dudes just you know running at the Germans. And uh, you know those stories about uh, they didn't even get a, half of them didn't get rifles because they didn't have enough. And it was like, okay, the dude in front of you gets shot, grab his rifle and go. And then you got the commissar sitting behind you with a Makarov uh, waiting to cap you if you turn around and try to, to run back, you know? So I, I don't know uh that the uh, Russian military has come very far from that time frame. You know, I don't know. <laughs> you know, it could be kind of a similar kind of thing. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, like you said, I mean, it is hard to, to believe in a per- perfect example putting it back on the U.S. Look at the way that... um the the uh, you know Iraqi freedom was kicked off. It was on the heels of nine eleven, and I think the most normal people were like, "Hey, this is a different country <laughs> that we're talking about." You know, nine eleven appears to be from you know Saudis that are hiding in Afghanistan, and now we're going back into Iraq. But that was you know a lot of people were kind of just brought in. You know, that the, the flag waving and the the retaliation without taking a step and looking at the details like, "Hey, these are two very very different countries and two completely different agendas."
1: Yeah, no, I um, <laughs> I was with 33 Squadron in, in the UK when they told us we were going to go to um, Kuwait and, uh, you know, prepare for the invasion. And, uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of us on the squadron going, why are we going to Kuwait and <laughs> why are we invading Iraq? You know, and uh, I, the person that I'm probably most dis- public figure I'm most disappointed in is Colin Powell. Um, because I had a lot of respect for him, um, after desert storm, you know, being, uh, you know, chairman of the joint chiefs and, um, you know, I read his biography and he talked you know, a lot about, um, not having another Vietnam, you know, that he was going, you know, if we we're going to go to war, we we're going to go to war to win. And, uh, and then when he stood up there, was he, he was a uh, secretary of state, wasn't he? Yeah. Secretary of state and uh you know presented the case um for uh, invading iraq and obviously it was bullshit <laughs> you know and and he he must have they they knew they knew um an interesting thing about that too is um probably about a year before um i i used to read um foreign affairs uh, publication and um And there was an article in there written by someone in the Bush administration or um, I can't remember who it was. Um, He was either in the Bush administration or he was a, you know, um, a professor um, and uh, about how if we if we were to um, establish a democracy in Iraq, that, um, you know, we could spread democracy throughout the region. And, you know, that would be like kind of the the linchpin right there. And then, you know, everything would be happy and everybody, you know, would be, uh, you know, uh, going to the voting booths and getting their fingers, you know, um, ink blue or whatever. Um, But, you know, obviously he had never been to the region (laughs) because, you know, that that region is is really not conducive uh, to uh, Western democratic ideals. Um, you know, uh, the Iraqis are, they're a very tribal people, you know, and even when I was, you know, doing my thing with the, uh, the, uh, the Iraqi air force, there were Sunnis, there were Shias there. And even within those groups, well, this guy is from here, this guy is from there. And it was all, you know, and we had one Kurd, they all made fun of the Kurd. <laughs> they, they would tell jokes about the Kurd every day, you know? Um, but, uh, but it's you know and we do that here uh too but over there it's a little bit uh, a little bit more intense um i think than here and i don't think that you know uh, looking at the whole thing if if you've been to that region you just think that everybody would just you know throw up their arms and be happy and then uh you know we would all live happily ever after uh, that's not the way it works over there not a, not at all
0: well know? another thing and again this is coming from someone who was never in the military not even the uh, salvation army um <laughs> One thing that that kind of, you know, it's become I guess a, a hot topic recently is the term, you know, military industrial complex. But it is something that I think a lot of us have witnessed for a long, long time. The same with the pharmaceutical industry in healthcare. And how prevention is so, so suppressed. I mean, you know, chiropractics, we're, we're, we're called heretics for the longest time, you know. And God forbid yeah. you talk about organic food and exercise, especially during COVID. Um, you right. know, uh, you burned at the stake. Well, the same thing applies to the military. And so many people I've spoken to when it comes to Afghanistan have all had the same kind of... Um, Perspective: We should have gone in with, you know, especially with Green Berets, you know, trained up the militia, taken out the training camps, killed the key figures, and then left again. And to me, as a complete layman, any time there is a large group that's obviously have many fingers in the pie in the White House too, prolonging a war and sending more of our children overseas. Put some more money in their pockets, so again, without loading the question with you having such a long service in the military, what is your observation or perspectives on that element, the profit element of war versus purely defending for the right reasons?
1: yeah, well, i mean um look look at I mean you just have to look at all the money that all the contractors made in Iraq and Afghanistan uh, you know k b r you know, the billions and billions of dollars that they made over there and all the other security contractors and, you know, building all these bases, massive bases with huge infrastructure. I mean, you know, uh, going down to Kandahar, you've got, uh, um was it, uh, what was that Canadian uh, coffee company down there? Uh, Jim Hortons, you know, they got a Jim Hortons in, in you know, in Kandahar. They actually, what did they have? Was it a Ruby Tuesdays or something there too? I don't know. I only went down there one time and. You know, (laughs) you just look at that and you go, this is ridiculous, man. (laughs) And, uh, you know, and the amount of money, like you said, that's spent on infrastructure uh, for the military, um, the equipment. I mean, you know, like you said, the Marines went over there and they've got, you know, soft-skinned Humvees driving around. So, okay, oh, now we have to build up armored Humvees. Uh, We have to build mine-resistant vehicles and, you know, and, Think about all the billions of dollars we spent uh, on all of that equipment. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> war, war, is, war is profit, man. I mean, there's no doubt about it, you know. Um, yeah, I just hope, I, I don't know that there's a way to um, make it stop, uh, really. Um, I was starting to get worried a little bit there, but I, I think it's kind of gone away is that, you know, you had some members in the government, you um, you know, rattling the sabers about the Ukraine. Um, <laughs> okay. I get it. I, I don't want to see the Ukrainian people suffer um, at the hands of the Russians, but uh, I also don't want to see my brothers and sisters going over there uh, and getting, you know, killed for, for that cause. I mean, what, <laughs> you know, uh, what do we, what do we owe the Ukrainians? Uh, you know um uh, and, and that's that's something that, you know, um, I've had to think about over, over the years is, you know, going over there and, and flying and getting shot at and, you know, even, and not even like uh, just getting shot at, but just dealing with the elements over there with flying, you know, sandstorms and, you know, flying on MVGs, zero loom nights at uh, 50 feet off the desert. And, you know, um, it, what what if if I were to die in that situation, right? What what would have you know what point would it have made <laughs> you know what I mean for my family you know now I've got you know kids without a father a wife without a husband um why what What? what was I fighting for was I fighting for you know Kellogg Brown and Root so there's make a billion dollars you know um and especially when it would you know get over to the, the Hammer 3-4 thing about coming back from that I'm like okay well we were over there trying to help the Kos- uh, Kosovans, um, you know, not get slaughtered by um, by the Serbs, uh, get driven out. Um, but do did you know? I mean, do they give a shit about you know about my sacrifice or, or my family at that point? You know, it becomes personal, right? you know, at that point, right? So, uh, so that's something that you know, even though like I said, I've never been wounded or anything like that, and, and I've I've come to grips with it. You know, I'm, yeah, I've, I volunteered; it was my career. That's what I did, um, you know, and I took my chances and luckily came out the other end, you know, none the worse for wear. Um, but, you know, what if, <laughs> you know, and at that point I still had a lot more, you know, deployments to go. So, you know, uh, going back into going to Iraq, you know, after that, why are we going to Iraq? Well, you know, especially when you, you've been to the region and you know that um, Saddam Hussein is a dictator or was a dictator. He cared about Saddam Hussein. He did not care about al-Qaeda. He didn't care about any of these causes. He was only about personal preservation. So even if he had chemical weapons, why would he give them to al-Qaeda? And why would he be implicated in, in an attack against the West? It didn't make any sense. You know, he was about maintaining power. And that is not how you maintain power, right? So, you know, you know, it wasn't about, about weapons of mass destruction. It had nothing to do with it. So which is which is disappointing because, like I said, you know, um, I know, you know, guys have gone over there and and sacrificed their lives for that.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, like you said, your pilot friend that lost his life with the um, air controllers. I mean, that in itself, each one of those events, whether it's an accident, you know, and on a fob, whether it was actually in combat, whether it was so many that were lost through IEDs. I mean, there's a lot of veterans that are struggling now from Iraq. I mean, Jocko Willink talks about Ramadi where Ramadi isn't, you know, isn't stable anymore it's back it's kind of regressed again so was you know obviously so much of Afghanistan and how in Vietnam and you know all these all these different conflicts that we sent our men and women to I've always said you know World War II was an all-hands you know conflict and it needed to be right. all of us roll up our sleeves and then whatever role we can fill we have to fill but that should have been such a st- uh, like a harsh warning for the rest of us as a you know cautionary tale for when we send our children to war again and sadly it you know it was only years before korea then vietnam and you know and here we are just you know finishing one and as you mentioned politicians trying to push our children into another one
1: right right no again um i don't know that you can make it stop i mean there's just uh there's just so much money involved really i mean it's you know um and they're just you know I think they'll just try and push it again. And, you know, unfortunately there's a lot of, and especially we're we're realizing nowadays, a lot of these politicians are in the pockets of the billionaires and the corporations and all that stuff. And they're more than happy to, you know, take a, take a fistful of money and, uh, and send us off to somewhere that we really don't need to be, you know, which it's, it's, and, you know, I, I would hope that we could, um, influence that someday, you know, as the people and, Get these people out of office, but <laughs> as as you know, as you see, it's it's hard, man. Once they got their their you know claws in, man, it's hard to get them out of that uh, out of that you know money making job in Congress, you know. So
0: yeah, no we we need to just clean house and totally reinvent the way that we choose leaders. Because I've I've said this analogy a lot. It's like going to a turd factory and expecting cupcakes. Like, you're going to keep getting a turret every four years. doesn't matter what fucking color their tie is. It's the same piece of shit <laughs> yeah. over and over again. And, I'm, you know, that sounds like anti-patriotic. It's not. When you care about your country, you want it to to be well-led. And there's so many great, great people that simply do not qualify because they're not millionaires and they actually have ethics.
1: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's uh, I don't know, understand why it's so hard to find those people nowadays. And I hope that... You know, some of the veterans that are coming up and getting into politics can change that. Hopefully they won't be, you know, um, you know, go when they won't go over to the dark side. Um, but, you know, and maybe they can change things around. I mean, you know, like I said, I respected Colin Powell and I thought that, man, this guy is going to going to fight for the troops and he's not going to let, you know, Vietnam happen again. And he was the one, you know, one of the ones leading the charge. You know, I was like, dude, you know, uh, you know. Uh, yeah it's just hard to tell anymore i i, I don't know you know uh, i don't know where where it's going to go i don't have any solutions or or anything it's just you know hopefully it will be better hopefully we can get people into office that uh, that won't be that way i don't know
0: well i think it's important though, as i said we hear these these stories um sebastian junger talks about uh the veterans town hall and something i actually tried to do in my town and and uh i Pitched to the, to the veterans um, organization here and they loved it and I never heard anything since. But then I realized, well, wait a second, that's kind of what the podcast is anyway. Thousands of people get to hear, you know, the voices of, of the boots on the ground. So I want to get to, to Hammer 34, but just before we do, the other side of that question I asked you A lot of times, you know, our men and women are deployed in these countries, and more often than not, it's the men and women themselves of that nation that are being oppressed um, by the extremists. So amidst so many of these combat zones that you found yourself in, were there any moments of kindness and compassion that really stuck with you? Uh,
1: Yeah, probably when um, I was with 33 Squadron and we were doing – um, we we're doing medevac mainly around the Alpha Peninsula, Basra, that whole southern area there, over to the Iranian border. Um, you know, there was a lot of uh, a lot of children, um, you know, being wounded by uh, unexploded ordnance and that kind of thing. We did a lot of medevac with with that, and I was I was just looking at my uh, I had a calendar where I was taking notes on the different medevacs that I did, and um, I've actually um, got some uh, pictures from this particular um, medevac. And um, it was a uh, a young Iraqi boy, and uh, we picked him up from. He had gotten hastily put back together at a field hospital, and we were bringing him. Um, were we bringing him into Kuwait? I can't remember. We either bring him down to Kuwait or bring him down to a bigger hospital that was set up just outside the Basra airport. Um, but anyway, and uh, he was, you know, in the back, and he didn't have his shirt was open. and He, he had been. They basically hastily sewed him up. He had been, you know. Cut open from basically his you know, almost by his, his penis all the way up to his neck, and um, his dad was in the back of the helicopter. And we had um, uh, Royal Air Force uh, nurses in the back and a med crew, and they were trying to take care of him. We also had some other kids on board as well, but they weren't as uh as uh um, wounded as this kid, horribly uh, wounded. And uh, the dad was, you could tell, we were you know in the Puma you have like a little corridor where you can like kind of look in the back from the cockpit. And um, I, I remember just looking back and the father was just, just freaking out, man. Um, you know, and, um, and we were trying to figure out, well, shit, has I mean, anybody got anything to, you know, to give him? And I think, uh, like it was JP's idea. He's like, Hey, I've got some uh, some cookies or something up in the cockpit. And like, you know, he's just like handing them back and handing out the cookies of the guy. And you know, the guy's like, you know, yeah, okay, thanks, you know, eating cookies, feeding, feeding kids some cookies and stuff like that, just to, to get them to calm down. And, you know, not to f- mention the fact that he's, the kid's wounded, but now you're in a helicopter um, being taken away by the invaders of your country that just, you know, just came across the border and just ruined everything for you, um, you know, to get into the hospital. But, uh, but yeah, I saw, you know, the the medical crews um, that we had, we had, like I said, we had a lot of uh, those medevacs, and they were very compassionate and kind um you know to to the Iraqi people. I and mean, these are just average people, man. I mean, you know, imagine, you know, um the Canadians coming <laughs> over the border, you know, and just starting to sh- tear shit apart in the in our country, you know, and uh and people just getting caught in the middle of it. You know, um I didn't feel any ill will towards towards those guys. I mean they didn't, you know, this this father and his his son had nothing to do with what the fuck what was going on. You know. So um but yeah so so saw so a bit of that, you know, trying to um you know just take care of those average people you know that you knew had nothing to do with this shit you know what i mean
0: yeah well i mean these are these are the important things too i've heard so many of these stories whether it's kindness and compassion from the iraqis or the afghani people towards our military you know towards each other you know even our own military towards the the animals of a country and again, yeah, these are so. not the stories that we hear. And we need to hear. We need to hear the worst ones. We need to hear the atrocities that we commit. That needs to be out there, too. But also you know, the middle middle 90% where what we're trying to do, the kindness and compassion from both sides, the human element, rather than, as we're seeing now, all Russians are the enemy. No, I don't think right. most Russians even have any idea what's going on, you know, if they're right. not directly involved.
1: Right, right. Yeah. And I'm sure there's Russians out there that are waving the flag and all that stuff. but. Like you said probably not you know probably not a majority of the population you know is doing that um they've got their sons and daughters out there dying in ukraine for again what you know <laughs> well you know why why are we invading the ukraine now so but uh yeah no i think it's yeah it's 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 i think it's it's worldwide i mean it's just common people you know and when i was um Uh, I was in Kenya for, for several exercises Uh, and, you know, there was no conflict going on down there, but, you know, just sitting around talking to the Kenyan air force, you know, mechanics and and pilots. I mean, you know, yeah, you know, they don't have a lot of money there. It's a, it's a pretty poor country. Um, But, you know, sitting down talking about their hopes and dreams, you know, and they got, you know, there's one, you know, enlisted guy uh, in the Kenyan air force, one of the, the mechanics, he's like, Telling me how, yeah, you know, eventually I retire from the Kenyan Air Force and I just want to get a little shop and you know and uh, and support my family and stuff like that. You know. Same same story as everybody else in the world, man. I just want to live, you know. Without uh, without all the other bullshit.
0: Absolutely. Know? I think that's it. You know, the commonalities are far greater than the uh, the differences, you know, and that's oh, the yeah, part definitely.
1: that's lost. Yeah, definitely.
0: All right. Well, I want to get to the rescue of Hammer 34. So, walk me through your journey to flying special operations, and then let's get to that particular event.
1: Okay. Um, so, yeah. So, after the Army, so, um, one desert storm came back to Germany, spent about another year in Germany. Then I um, PCS'd, um, permanent change of station to uh, Fort Campbell, uh, Kentucky, uh, was there for about two years and um, during that time frame uh, when, when I was in Germany I would started my bachelor's degree um, to try and get that knocked out um, then when I was at Fort Campbell I was able to um, uh, even though I was in the field a shit ton of Fort Campbell um, I was still able to uh, to knock out my bachelor's degree um, and uh, when I was in Germany it was kind of funny I was at the uh, on our base in Stucke Army Airfield we had a uh, an APHES um little canteen uh cantina and um it was it was basically the warrant officer lounge <laughs> we'd all you know after p t in the morning we'd all take showers and we'd meet there and have breakfast or whatever you know, so I was sitting at a table one morning with um um two w threes and a w four i mean and I was maybe w two at the time you young guy and um you know these were my idols um you know these are the guys who were you know the gods to me, and uh they were like uh Uh, Hey, Bill, they were bitching about the army. I mean, just completely just tearing the army apart. Right. As we do, you know, you do that in the military. Right. So um, they look at me and go, Bill, you're a young, smart kid. Uh, Get the fuck out while you can. Basically, (laughs) you know, don't they go, don't don't be like us. They go. And if you want to stay in the military, like, you know, go in the Air Force or go in the Coast Guard. I'm like, huh, okay. Well, these are my mentors, uh, telling me that, uh, you know, the army isn't the place to be. And uh, I was like, okay, all right. I, I, I kind of agree with that, I guess in a lot of ways. Um, but I still, well, I, I enjoyed military flying and, um, I was like, okay, um, I'm going to get my degree and I'm going to apply for the air force and the coast guard. Actually, I was going to do both. And, um, so as I was at Campbell finished my bachelor's degree with, uh, Amber Riddle and, um, I, uh, um applied i went to the uh, air force recruiter in town and uh i showed up there with my flight suit you know my uniform and i'm like hey dude i want to get in the air force you know and the sergeant air force sergeant's like looking at me like why well, aren't you in the military <laughs> like yeah but i want to be in your military you know kind of thing uh so he's like okay and um i put an application for officer training school in the air force and got picked up and uh when when the air force finished up OTS, um, and uh, my first assignment wound up being after everything was said and done in, um, at the 55th Special Operations Squadron uh, down in Florida, um, uh, flying the uh, MH-60G Pavehawk um, down there. Uh, so, uh, and it was kind of, a, it was one of those things where that's where I kind of wanted to be. Well, initially when I got in the Air Force, I wanted to fly A-10s, um, but that wasn't going to happen. So where else do I want to be? And I'm like, well, if I'm going to be in the Air Force flying helicopters, it's definitely going to be in Special Operations. So, uh, so that's where, uh, where I kind of focused, uh, focused my efforts to get in there. Um, so, yeah, sort of flying down there, um, doing, uh, I mean, we've worked with, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of, uh, you know, special forces operators, um, you know, all, all the big names, you know, that kind of thing, um, doing all that stuff. Uh, but it was all exercise exercises and, you know, bioats and JT, uh, um, joint training exercises, and all that. So, JTFs uh, and things like that. Um, and I did that for like, uh, we were down there for about f- almost three years. And the squadron was actually on the chopping block and, uh, we were going to disband, they were going to disband the squadron. So, uh, I was actually a planner for the last, um, exercise we were going to do with the seals and, um, you know, getting ready to go do that. And all of a sudden they say, Oh, um we started you know the whole air war in serbia we're going to you know bomb Milosevic in a submission um and uh you know to uh, prevent him from you know killing all the kosovans uh, down there the the cause Mo- Kos- uh, a little Mo-Sover muslim um and so I was like okay cool um so we uh packed everything up and we went over to uh brindisi italy um where we are part of a joint special operations task force they had set up there um, to do uh, combat search and rescue, and uh, and some other things, uh, we were doing some things down in Albania uh, as well, because the KLA was operating over the Albanian border and the Kosovo and doing that kind of thing. Um, so we, uh, yeah, so they set up the um, the task force. Um, the reason why you know, the Air Force, big Air Force, has uh, combat search and rescue forces, and um, but at the time they weren't really in the. Uh, um, right um, condition, uh, training, equipping in order to carry out a combat search and rescue mission like this. I mean, going over into an integrated air defense system uh, to pick up uh, a fighter pilot or a bomber pilot um, who is in a high performance aircraft uh, that just got shot down. And I'm supposed to go in there with a helicopter and pick this guy up. So um, we were fairly well equipped for that. Um, but they weren't at that time. They are now, though. They after uh, after um, Allied Force, they were able to get the, the funding to uh, get back up to speed. Um, but anyway, so we go to Brindisi, um, and uh, we, the war had not started yet. The bombing hadn't start had, hadn't started yet. We got there. Shoot, what was it? I don't know, only about forty eight hours before before everything kicked off. So we didn't have a lot of time to get things uh, spun up. But uh, we did come up with a um search and rescue package, which included um our aircraft, which is the MH60G, which is basically a version of the Army Black Hawk uh, with their fueling probe and other other cool shit on it, Um, for looking infrared, some other things. And um but we also had uh MH 53s, which is a very large um excuse me, helicopter um that special operations use to uh, to support you know special operations forces. Um, a lot better than, than the, uh, than the 60. Um, they had two different versions. One was the newest version, which was the Mike, um, which had an excellent, um, self-defense suite in it. And also had very uh, modern avionics, much, much better than what we had in the 60. Um, and they also, we also had J model 53s there as well, which were another step down. So we were trying to figure out, well, how do we want to go into Serbia and execute this? And, um, The feeling was we wanted to have one Mike Model 53 with all this cool avionics and all the cool self-defense suites. And then we were gonna have one of our 60s follow him in a two ship because the 53 is a big helicopter, puts out a lot of downwash and uh, not very good at hoisting. Um, And we thought that if we had to hoist the uh, survivor out, um, we would use a smaller helicopter with less downwash. Um, In order to get the uh, get the hoist working, you know, um, get them out there quick. Um, So we wanted to have that two ship package. Um, But the commander of the task force was uh, General Bargewell at the time. And uh, he was an army general. He was a one star, I want to say. And um, he was a Vietnam veteran, uh, Green Beret. And his idea was that we had to have a Special Forces um, A-team on the helicopters. In case, and in his words, we had to hold terrain. Um, and uh, Mike, well, <laughs> we're going into uh, a, a European country that has armored vehicles and, you know, obviously moderate, some modern equipment, most of the Soviet area, but era, but um, they're not going to be holding terrain. <laughs> this isn't, we're not going up against, you know, the Viet Cong, uh, you know, or guerrillas. I mean, these guys are going to be pretty damn well equipped. I doubt a special forces 18 um, is going to be able to hold out. But anyway, we, that's what we were going to do. So because of that, we had to add another 53 to the formation because if we're going to have you know another 10 guys on board these helicopters, if if the if the lead 53 got shot down and I was chalk two as a 60, there was no way I could get everybody on board the H60 to get them out of uh, get them out of Dodge. So I had to add another 53. So it wound up being a three ship formation, bringing more people to go in and pick up, usually about one guy, right? So we had, what, 36 guys between two the uh, three helicopters. So was pretty big, uh, um, pretty big force. Um, but anyway, that's what we decided on. And um, the uh, we set up um, to operate out of Tuzla, uh, Bosnia. Um, I guess the rule was we couldn't conduct uh, uh, combat operations out of Bosnia. Um, just because of the uh, rules that they had set up for the theater or whatever. Um, but they considered this combat search and rescue, so it wasn't offensive operations, right? So we were able to operate at, to, out of Tuzla. Um, and we would do usually uh, two nights up there. We would rotate up, do a couple nights of uh, uh, combat search and rescue standby. We'd go back to Merdizi. Um, we would go back down, and do some humanitarian stuff in Albania. Um, then back to Brindisi, have a couple of days off and then go back to Tuzla. So it was kind of a rotation that we had going on between the crews. So it just so happens, um, that, uh, you know, the night that I was up there, um, shit went down. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and that's a lot of things about, you know, I'm, I, I just want to get across here. I am not saying I am not fucking GI Joe, um, or Rambo, you know, it wasn't me. This is my part of the story, you know of the 36 guys that went over the board that night, you know, and the cast of thousands that's behind all of that, that goes on, you know, behind the scenes. So, um, uh, but anyway, so we're operating out at of Tuzla. Uh, we'd go up there. Um, usually we'd have like a, we called it uh, like a soft planning exercise or a CSR planning exercise. So the mission commander, um, who on that night happened to be uh, my squadron commander, um, the squadron commanders and DOs would rotate through, and they would basically be the mission commander in the back of the uh, lead, uh, MH-53. Um, so my squadron commander was up there. We do our planning exercise. So what we, he would do is um, he would just come up with a scenario. Hey, uh, F-16 got shot down here. Survivor's here. All right, plan. How are we going to get this guy out? That kind of thing. And then we'd have a you know planning exercise. We'd present the plan to him. And then we you know pick it apart. What could we do maybe better? Or you know how, how else could we execute this? That kind of thing. So we did that. Um, then we all, you know, go go to our hooches uh, to go to bed. And uh, I had just uh, laid down the hooch, and um, I had heard, you know, footsteps running up the platform. Somebody was running, which was unusual. And uh, you know, door opens up. Hey, you know, down to sixteen. Let's go. And we all got our shit and then uh, ran into the talk. And then uh, start, you know, got the mission, uh, what was going on, and then just started, boom, running the planning. How are we going to get in? How are we going to get this guy? Um, you know, routes and all that stuff. Um, fortunately for him, um, he wound up getting shot down and he was west of Belgrade. Um, so he was a little bit closer to the border because um, when he got um, hit by the missile, I mean, it was an SA-3, um, fragged his engine. Uh, he was able to glide as much as an F-16 can glide, um, to get a little bit closer to the border. Uh, and then he got, he got so low and there's actually some, uh, of his HUD footage, um, online and with audio, you can hear him talking and, uh, he's talking about what's going on. And, uh, so he starts gliding and he finally, he's just like, I can't go any further. I'm punching out boys. Come get me. And, uh, he ejects out of the F-15 or F-16 and, um, and gets on the ground. Um, for us, so this happened, that happened about, what was it? About two o'clock, just after two o'clock in the morning. Um, and, uh, so we start planning, blah, blah, blah. We go to the aircraft, we get on the uh, the runway. We're waiting for the, uh, the signal to go. And, um, (laughs) so comms, comms are so fucking important in the military. It's not even funny. And it's the same for you, like, you know, fire rescue, man, you need comms, man. So we get on the runway, and uh, we're, I'm Chalk 3, uh, and uh, Lead and Chalk 2 are trying to talk on the SATCOMs to get you know, secure SATCOMs to get things going, and they can't contact anybody. Um, so we, uh, we had the only operable SATCOM uh, in the formation uh, at that point. So we're trying to get information and then relay it up to those guys on, you know, secure short, shorter range radios, that kind of thing. And we're passing information back and forth. Um, They, so what we're hearing is that, um, you know, command and control um, AWACS and all those guys, Moonbeam, blah, 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 ABCCC, they're trying to get together a, um, a guerrilla rescue package of fighters and bombers, whoever they can to, Get out of Serbia, hit the tankers, and then go back to cover us as we as we go in. Um, but we're looking at the time frame, and here it is almost it's you know two o'clock in the morning, and uh, and we're like, well, wait a minute, you know, if we wait any longer, and we got to go in, it's going to be fucking daylight, and I'll be damned, <laughs> you know, if I'm going to go in Serbia in broad daylight because as it was, you know, everybody with a musket was shooting at us and, uh, you know, at nighttime. um, But, uh, but here we are going to go in during the day. So we're like, all right, if we're going to go, we're going to go now. And I didn't say that. That was actually um, my squad commander, uh, Colonel C. Lachine um, and in coordination with uh, Kent Landreth, uh, Lando, who was the uh, um, flight lead in the lead 53. And uh, they decided, you know, they're hearing all this and, you know, we're not getting the uh, authority to launch, and we we were on the runway for shit, sitting there um, for I don't know, must have felt like an hour, maybe about an hour, and um, so finally he just said, "Let's go, we're going," and uh, and we took off and just started heading towards the border, um, and uh, and obviously he had cleared that, so it was kind of the chain of command was kind of convoluted because you had big Air Force Air Combat Command, then we had our Special Operations Task Force who communicated, but we're not under the same chain of command. But anyway, they told our, we told our task force, the special, we're going. And, uh, and then they, you know, everybody else was alerted. Hey, the helicopters are heading towards the border. So we start taking off, we're heading towards the border. And um, one of the odd things that was going on was, you know, so we're in Bosnia, right. But, you know, Bosnia is a bit, pretty much divided into several sections, right. You got a Croat part of Bosnia you got, a Muslim part of Bosnia, and there's actually a Serb part of Bosnia called Republika Srpska, which is in Bosnia, but it's right up there on the border um, with Serbia, um, and to the west of the, was it the Sado River. And um, so they're obviously sympathetic to the Serbs. So as we're heading towards the border, and, and we know that they were monitoring the airfield. They had to have been. They probably had spotters out there um, letting the Serbs know what was going on with helicopters. <laughs> and well, we'll go back for a second. So um, in March, just after the war started, I don't know if you remember, there was an F-117 that got shot down um, by the Serbs. Um, so that task force was this, our, that was the uh, same task force, just different uh, different aircraft and, and people. Um, actually, except for Lachine. Lachine was actually the mission commander on both the F-117 and the F-16 rescue, which was, you know, just the luck of the draw for him. But, um, uh, they had launched out of Tuzla. They went in um, the night they went in. The weather was dog shit, uh, low ceilings, fog. They had a hell of a time just getting through the weather to get to the guy, but they got him out. Um, so then about what, a week or two later, um, air force times publishes an article during the war about how this rescue went down. And even said that the helicopters launched out of Tuzla. <laughs> So, so there was any secrecy that we had, which probably we had not anyway, was now completely fucking blown because the air force times had just, you know, front page article. Right. So, um, so as we're taking off and we're heading towards the border, we noticed that, um, the, the lights in the towns that were approaching, they start lights, start shutting off as we're, as we're like on our flight path towards the border. So, um, we're like, yeah, that's, uh, that's unusual. <laughs> Everybody's going to bed at the same time. Right. So, um, so we get to the, we get to the border and, uh, Oh, by the way, it's hundred percent illumination. It's, you know, huge fricking moon. Um, it's, you know, I, we really didn't even have to have MVGs on. It was so damn bright. I mean, if you looked underneath, you could make out everything, but you know, it was like a safety net for me. I got my MVGs on. Cause if I can't, you know, that. If I can't see them, they can't see me kind of thing, or whatever. so um so we're heading towards the border, then um, the river has a fog layer over it, uh, a little of a fog layer, and we get over the top and we're just crossing over the border and um I see uh, everybody saw it, these two bright dots just kind of launch like right off our nose, and my first thought was, hey, somebody's getting shot at it. <laughs> And it turns out we were getting shot at. They launched a couple of missiles uh at us. And uh, we didn't have, I didn't have anything in my uh, radar warning receiver. Um, I don't think the 53s picked up anything either. Um, But because what the service were doing, and they were smart. I mean, they, you know, a well-educated European country. uh, So they had some pretty smart operators. They, what they would do is they were launching missiles at um, aircraft hoping to get a reaction because they didn't want to turn on their radars because if they turned on the radars to, in order to acquire, they were going to get a, a, uh, a high-speed anti-radiation missile down that radar beam to hit the radar site, right? So they were launching missiles and then kind of trying to get aircraft to maneuver and then flashing the radars on, trying to get a quick lock in order to hit them. Think that's probably what they were trying to do with us, um, but... We didn't buy we just launched our chaff and flares, um, and we had some radar jamming capabilities, so they just kind of went over the top of us and uh, and we continued on. Um, I never saw it, but um, the uh, the fifty some of the fifty three crews, and I don't my crew saw it said that there was some AAA coming up through the fog um, as we were uh, crossing over the river. Um, got to the other side, and AAA kind of dived down and we were heading to the coordinates that we were given by, um, by C2. Um, we're going there, we're going there. We're getting closer and um, uh, we're, we can hear the, F, the uh, A-10 overhead. Actually, I'm sorry, it was either the A-10 or the F-16. Somebody was talking to the survivor and we could hear them talking to the survivor but we couldn't hear the survivor and, we were, getting, and we we're getting really close. We're like, this is unusual. Why are we not hearing the survivor? um we keep going at um at one point um we're passing by there's a town out to the right and we pass the town and obviously we're we're tailing Charlie so 253s go past and then we've got us right at being the town and somebody in the town decided to open up on on us uh small arms i imagine probably like a um probably AKs PKMs something like that uh started shooting at us I didn't see it because by the time they started shooting, it was just about our four o'clock. So I didn't see any of the tracers, but my um, flight engineer who's sitting behind me with his minigun, he sees the tracers start coming. So he just opens up with the minigun, you know, 4,000 rounds a minute and just basically, you know, strafes the top of the building uh, that the the fire was coming from. And, um, and I didn't, you know, normally we would, you know, they would call ground fire, you know, we would break and all that stuff. but. He just, it was pretty good directed fire. Again, it was bright as hell outside and he just opened up and suppressed it. I didn't, I stayed platform for him so that I didn't want to bank because I wasn't quite sure. I'm pretty sure it was him, but if it was Jack on the other side, uh, I didn't want to mess up Rich's, uh, you know, firing solution on that. So we just kept on going. And then uh, he goes, I go, Hey Rich, what happened? What's going on? He's like, Oh, got ground fire from, uh from building. He goes, I suppressed it. He goes, uh, hey, man, I, I hear some whistling. Um, he goes, I, I think we may have been hit. The bullets are pretty close. I'm like, I'm looking down, you know, me and Tom, a co-pilot, we're just looking at the gauges. We're like, okay, everything looks good. I shake the stick, you know, collect wiggle the pedals. I'm like, yeah, everything feels good. And uh, he's like, okay, I go, well, just let me know if you hear anything else, you know, kind of thing, you know. So we just kept on going. Um, we got to the first site that they gave for the coordinates. And, um, so again, it's weird because we can talk to the fighters. We can't talk to the survivor and we're supposed to be right over his location. And the survivor is saying he can't hear helicopters. So we're like, man, what the fuck is going on, man? So the, uh, the, one of the guys up top, I think, I want to say it was his wingman, his F-16 guy, um, told him to get a, uh, a flare ready. Well, I didn't. Didn't exactly like that idea of popping a flare <laughs> because, you know, if there's somebody looking for him, um, then we're going to be possibly in a gunfight to get this guy out. Um, but as soon as he said that, just after he said, uh, told him to prepare the flare, I see, or oh, well, not me, but Jack, who's my uh, gunner, he's in the back on the left side. He calls out survivor, uh, survivor in sight, nine uh, o'clock. So I immediately banked the aircraft went and had him talk me eyes on to the light. And, um, I, you know, tell the 53, uh, lead until Lando, Hey, we're breaking off. We've got to fight survivor in sight. So we start heading there and, you know, starting to slow down. And there's this really bright light, uh, near a farmhouse and we're getting closer and closer and closer. And like, I don't think this is it guys. And we fly over. And it just so happened at that time, you know, farmer Vlad, uh, probably turned on his light to go feed his fucking cows or some shit uh, just at that time where, um, you know, we, he told him to prepare the flare and then his light came on and that looked like a, a flare under the MVGs. Right. So we, we fly overhead. Nope. That's not, definitely not it. And uh, we called the dry hole, you know, Hey, this is not it. Um, Survivor's not here. And uh, the 53s, you know, they had gone a little bit out to the, to the West. And then they swung back uh, crashing to the East. They swung back around. Um, actually, I totally forgot about the other, uh, missile engagement that we had, um, that was early on. Um, yeah, I totally forgot about it. So as we're coming over the border, um, so we had the AAA and then, um, there was, uh, um, AAA and then we were, so we had the missile engagement, we had the AAA. So Lando, uh, and I'm going back now. I know I'm sorry. I messed this up. Um, so we had just come over the border, AAA. The missile launch and then Lando's like shit they've got this part of the border defended we need to get back over into Bosnia we'll find another place to get into get into Serbia. So we turn and he starts turning back towards the river. And as we're as we're turning um I can't remember it was Jack or Rich. I thought it was Rich, but um I was talking to Jack a couple months ago and he said it was him um he calls a missile launch at um at our seven o'clock. And um, I immediately, I'm like shit. And Jack's good dude, you know, fucking old school uh, aerial gunner in the Air Force, been around the block. And as he calls it, I make a turn. I start popping uh, chaff and flare. We didn't have automatic dispensers. I had to use my my thumb and uh, pop a bunch of uh, expendables out. And as we make that turn. He go. I mean, his voice went up about fucking five octaves. Eight, I don't know, he just started screaming like a little girl. Now, nah, Jack's probably listening, kick me in the ass, but no, he starts, he starts missile, missile, you know, nine o'clock. And uh, so it's, when he says that, I pop some more chat Flair. And I'm an old school army guy, so um, in the army, you know, we get this low as we possibly fucking can, you know, and the big thing was. You know, and especially when you're flying, you know, Huey's in the Cold War. We don't have a lot of defensive suite on it, you know, on the aircraft. We don't have chaff. Well, yeah, we didn't have chaff before. um It was put trees and rocks between you and whatever is shooting at you, right? So they can't shoot at you. So I freaking bottomed the collective and my dove and the missile went over over the top of us and um, passed the tail end of the Chalk 253. This happened so fast. I mean, it's... Dude, it was, the whole thing probably took seven or eight seconds, probably. <laughs> I mean, you know, I didn't have time to get out of call to, uh, um, to the to 53s. Um, the tail gunner on Chalk 253 on the ramp, uh, wanted wound up being Dan Weimer. I didn't know him at the time, um, probably, you know, I talked to him a couple times, but just saw him around. We wound up being st- uh, stationed at the, uh, that foreign internal defense unit I was talking about together. And we were talking one day and about the rescue and, and he goes, yeah, man. He goes, when, uh, when I saw you guys, uh, friggin pop the, the chaff and flares, man, you dove, he goes, I thought you got hit. And, uh, and he was uh, telling his crew that I think the 60 just fucking got hit. And, uh, then he said, he saw the, you know, as is going on, he's seeing the missile, uh, you know, uh, come past, you know? Um, so shit got out of that. We got back over the border, went back into Bosnia a little bit, flew a little bit further south. And then went back over the border again, and that's when we started heading towards the survivor. And in between there, then we had the, the ground fire um, from that to, from that building top. So we get over that site, like I said. Fast forward again, we can't find him; he's not there. Um, you know, and we get joined back up at the fifty three. Is like, well, now what? You know, all we're doing is just flying around in Serbia, fucking trolling for ground fire right now, right? So, um, so. Um, it's relayed to command and control he 's not here. we need new coordinates. and um, all of a sudden the, the the satcom radio it just explodes. everybody starts talking And nobody you know we can't get into a word in edgewise. So Jack, my gunner, he 's got the SATcom control head on in his station um, in the back. and like I said jack's good dude man. You know, he just gets on that radio and uh, he didn't use proper radio etiquette. He just basically said, um, I need everybody to clear this fucking net right now. (laughs) And it went silent, uh, actually. And then uh, then he relayed to them, we need good coordinates or updated coordinates right now. And then I don't know who it was. I can't remember. Somebody came over the radio and said, you know, gave us coordinates. And those wind up being the good coordinates in the end. So we're like, okay, punch new coordinates in, pass it to the other guys. And we start heading towards, uh, towards the survivor. Um, yeah, so we just, uh, nothing much happened on the way. Um, I, I really didn't see too much ground fire. Some guys said they saw some, some ground fire coming up, um, but, uh, but nothing that was directed. I think they were just maybe shooting that helicopter noise or something or whatever. So now we're getting towards the, 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 good location and we can hear, um, the a 10s talking, uh, they're up overhead. They're talking to the survivor. Now we can start hearing the survivor. So now we know that we're in the right location and we have a little, little device in the, in the cockpit that can, um, basically home in on the survivor's radio. Right. So now we're like, okay, boom. All right, cool. We got it. We're, we're heading inbound. And, um, so we're getting closer and then all of a sudden he goes, yeah, I can hear you guys. I can hear you guys. And he did an awesome job, man. He, he wound up getting us to within about a half a mile south of his position um, just by vectoring us based on our rotor noise. <laughs> so he did a, he did a pretty good job on, on that. So he's up to our, again, our nine o'clock and um, first 53 goes past second 53 goes past. He finally gets his IR strobe on and um, Jack Calls out again. Survivor in sight. Nine o'clock. Um, I'm like, okay, got it. You know, we break off, and this time I actually see an IR strobe. So I'm like, all right, this is this is the right the right location. Um, the 53s go a little bit further to the west. Um, Lando dropped off Chalk Two to orbit to the um, to the east, while um, he came back over the top of us. But by the time he got back to us, we were already on the ground and out with the survivor on board. So. Um, and basically the pickup worked, we're coming in and, um, he's calling us in. He's like, yeah, I got you inside. Keep coming, keep coming. And he's like, you know, trying to voice control the helicopter for crying out loud. And I'm like, yeah, dude, we got you inside, man. It's all right. You know? And so we land, it was, um, uh, we land on the down slope of a hill that was off to our left side. So I was able to get the left wheel on the slope. And then barely get the uh the bottom of the right wheel on. So I was a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of a slope. And I just kind of held it there with with power end. So this way, you know, if I, if I put it full down, we we'll probably would have rolled over. So I just kind of held it there, um, kind of balanced on the slope. The um the PJs, we had two PJs and a combat controller on board. Um that um and yeah, we can talk later about those guys because they've uh they've experienced a lot of PTSD, uh not from this, but from other things, but um so they uh they got the survivor in sight um they jump out they actually knocked a case of water out of the helicopter um as we were in the lz so we did a little bit of humanitarian work there too uh as well <laughs> as picking up the survivor um that was for far- farmer
0: ivanov so he could feed his cows
1: <laughs> yeah 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 he's, he's got a nice case of uh, evian water there you know so he can <laughs> uh, water his cows. um so they run over and, uh, it was only, it was just outside the rotor disc. So it wasn't very far. They all, they're all like huddled around him. He's doing the right thing. He's, you know, being submissive, got his hands up and all that. Um, and, uh, they get to him and they're, you know, interrogating them. You got to ask him questions and stuff like that. But as soon as they get down, start talking to him, It looked like, uh, what was that with the, um, uh, meerkats, meerkat manor. Um, they all popped their heads up and started looking around because the 53s who were off to our east, as they were coming around, they were getting shot at. Um, so there was a little bit of ground fire going up towards them. So they heard the ground fire. So it was like, "All right, dude, dude in a flight suit, he's in the field, he's got an IR show. We're talking to him. Get the fucking helicopter." So they just grabbed him and ran back to the helicopter. Um, luckily, that because the the slope and the deck, the deck was like at chest height, so. That, that case of water actually acted as a step in order to use that to, to get, pull everybody into the helicopter. So my flight engineer, Rich, he's grabbing everybody. Actually Jack got out of his seat to just to drag people into the helicopter. Um, they got him on the deck and then the PJs both jumped on him. I think on the combat controller, they like pressed them into the floor. And uh, I'm sitting there in the cockpit and I'm just, Hey guys, we're ready to take off, we're ready to take off. And, um, I'm not hearing shit, but then all of a sudden I hear just everybody starts yelling over the top of the, I can hear over the engines, the rotors just go, 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 go. I'm like, all right, fuck it. And, uh, you know, we're going to go and just pull up on the collective and pulled out of there. And um, uh, the uh, the survivor was actually, he was just the former chief of staff of the Air Force. His name was uh, Goldfein. And um, so at that time he was a lieutenant colonel. And every time he realized that story, he said they were taking off. And his legs, he said his legs were hanging out. Actually, his, his feet were hanging out the door as we were taking <laughs> off. But he had two PJs on top, and so he wasn't going anywhere. Um, but uh, we get above the trees, and just as we get to the treetops, Lando in lead 53, he's like, comes right in front of me. So I just fell in behind him. And then um, we just got, you know, contacted chalk 253. He fell in behind us, and we just, you know, went to the border as fast as we could um the 53 even though it's a larger helicopter is actually faster than the h60 the way we had it configured which was too heavy we had too much shit on it um so uh i'm just i got the collective pulled in my um you know gas uh, engine gas temperatures bouncing off the of freaking red um and i'm like and actually i think either Tom or Rich called it out to me at one point point, like, Hey, we're, we're, we're topping out. I'm like, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> because at this point I'm looking on through the MVGs and um, you know, it's, it's really fucking bright. And I kind of like look started looking around and it's basically fucking daylight. Um, so I'm just like, we need to get the hell out of here because everybody's going to start shooting at us. Um, nothing really happened. I mean, we had some small arms fire as we came back over the river and, um, nothing that was really aimed or anything. I think we were just shooting up in the air and, uh, and we got out over the border. Um, one of those kind of funny things that happened, you know, during combat. So we're, you know, I got the aircraft maxed out and, uh, we're going as fast as we can. And all of a sudden, um, uh, <laughs> rich fires his minigun again. And it was a quick burst like, and, you know, but with a minigun, it catches your attention. and. Uh, so I'm like, "Hey, Rich, what's going on?" He's like, um, "Nothing. <laughs> we we were going. He, he had he took his hand off of the off of the gun to adjust his radio, but he didn't have a good grip on it, and we were going so fast it it moved the gun. His finger accidentally hit the trigger, but uh, we just sent a bunch of rounds out into a field. It didn't like go into a town or anything like that. So, but it's just one of those things. Like, and then you know, then I don't know. It was just weird, but the uh, uh, you know we were just on pure adrenaline. We just started talking. I, I don't know. We, we weren't going to talk about anything in particular. And then I remember Tom was like, Hey guys, we still got to get over the border, man. You know, you know, just <laughs> keep it, keep it fresh here, you know? And I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, whatever. You know, by that time we have been in the country for an hour or so, you know, trolling for ground fire that entire time. So fuck it. So, um, but anyway, we keep on going, we get over the border, um, and, uh, and got back to Tuzla. Uh, we landed, Survivor got out. Um, and he's like, you know, you know, hugging us and, you know, basically, you know, thanks, you know, for saving my ass and all that shit. And um, and uh and they had a C 130 waiting for him to bring him back um to Aviano because uh the squadron was operating out of Aviano with F 16 squadron there. Um, and yeah, and that was it. And then we just started surveying the damage of the helicopter. Um, we found a. The reason why Rich heard that whistling noise, we did have a bullet hole, went through the one of the blades uh, on the 60. just like a blade tip. It's like kind of angled backwards. It went through there. Um, and then um, we had another bullet that went through the aft end of the fuselage and up into the number one engine compartment. And um, it actually came really close to hitting the engine, but it wound up hitting a bracket and disintegrating and broke the bracket um but other than that that was about that was about it we didn't really have uh, have a lot of damage so we were pretty lucky one of the 53s took a bullet um just above the cockpit um but surprisingly you know with all of the people shooting at us that's all we came out with man i mean that was that was about it you know and this is you know it's a war story with i guess a happy ending i mean you probably if you you know uh, made a Hollywood movie or something about it, and they're like, oh, everybody came out happy and and uh, you know survived. Um, you know they'd be like, "Oh, it's bullshit." <laughs> you know that doesn't happen. You know so, um, but uh, yeah, luckily I was, I was part of something that uh, worked out well in the end. You know, and there was a lot of lessons learned uh, from that. You know, like I said, number one, comms, man, <laughs> comms are so fucking important. You know, and also the life support gear. The reason why we got wrong coordinates is that his radio, um, it had, it was, they were the newer radios and, um, they, they basically were sent over from the States and they weren't initialized in theater and it had a GPS on it. So he couldn't get, when he was on the ground, he was running around for a while and it wasn't finding the satellites because it couldn't find the satellites, right? Cause it hadn't been initiated in theater yet. So that's why it took so long for them to get, Uh, good coordinates uh, from because the radio was, uh, was behind the power curve on that. So, but, um, but yeah, so, so that was, that was basically it, man. So,
0: well, thank you. Thank you for relaying that. I mean, you know, such an incredible story. And again, these are the boots on the ground or boots in the air stories that we don't really get to hear, but that I can only imagine the stress, the, uh, the adrenaline that was, you know, in play during the rescue. What, was the aftermath of like that you know once you actually landed safely you know back in uh in bosnia you know what was was there a wave of of other emotions for that followed that
1: uh you know i mean well talking about the adrenaline when it was happening um you know um i, I kind of felt at one point i'm like you know in a helicopter you know helicopter pilots kind of like slunched forward in our seats you know we got our you know slouched in in the seat and i remember at one point I'm feeling like the, my spine, you know, unlike, you know, guys on the ground, I guess, who are, you know, you're running around you're doing stuff and I don't think you really have time to really feel what your body's doing. Maybe, you know what I mean? I, I, I don't know, you know, but, but I could, you know, I'm just sitting there in a fucking seat, you know, and uh, I'm like, I just felt like tingling just going up and down my spine. man. It was just really, a really odd feeling, you know? Um, and then uh, when we got back, shit, we just, we sat around and, we were just outside the helicopter. We started talking and looking at damage. And then we started, hey, do you remember this happened or that happened? Yeah, man. You know, just going through everything. And then it was just like, hey, "Anyone we go to breakfast? Yeah. And then we just went to the chow hall and made breakfast. <laughs> you know? And then after that, we are pretty fucking tired. You know, you get the adrenaline dump and then we just go to bed. And we actually had to be ready because we were on alert again that night. They didn't send anybody to replace us. So it was, so we had to get a new helicopter. They sent a new helicopter up there in the daytime. And then at the end of the day, we went out, pre flighted it. And then, all right, we're doing this again. So, you know, we'll see what happens tonight. But, but during the, the yeah, during, the, I mean, it was just, okay, that's your job, man. <laughs> Fucking go do it again if you have to, you know? So, uh, uh, but that was the only, there was only two aircraft shot down, fighters shot down. There was the stealth F 117. Uh, and then that one F-16, uh, they got shot down. that you rescued that was both it. pilots. What's
0: that? And you rescued both pilots you, between the two groups.
1: Uh Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't me, but yeah, another yeah one of the other guys from my squadron. I uh, rescued the other pilot, the F-117 guy.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I can relate so much to the, the aftermath because, I mean, anyone listening that's in you know, law enforcement or fire or EMS, you know, you literally have wiped the blood out the back of the ambulance or, you know, repack your hose and yeah that's it game on you're back in service and off you go again and then you know you may get the the luxury of going to bed or getting something to eat or you might get banged out immediately to something else and there's nothing more surreal than literally watching someone die and then before you know it lights and sirens and you're off to the next one it's very very bizarre
1: yeah and that's that's what i experienced after i retired in civilian medevac you know um go out to uh i don't know you know an mva and you know, like you said, just blood all over the aircraft. Clean up the blood, and then go back in the office and wait for the next call. You know, or you know, go pick up the, you know, the guy who uh, tried to commit suicide with a shotgun. Um, but all he managed to do was blow his entire face off. You know, that kind of thing. And you're like, oh, holy shit, you know. And then drop that guy off, and then go to an MVA or go pick up a kid at Children's Hospital or something like that, or you know, or take him to Children's Hospital or something like that. So yeah, it's just. Again, game on, man. I was, okay, well, that's over. Let's get on with the next thing kind of thing, you know? Don't even have time to really reflect sometimes on what the fuck just happened.
0: No, which so. is why it's important to make space for that whenever is, is appropriate. Yeah. Now, you yeah. touched on the, the PJs and combat controller struggling later on. I want to get your transition out and get into fire and EMS, but just before we do, I'd love to expand on that.
1: Yeah, um, this and, you know, this happened in 99. Um, uh, so um, you know, nine eleven was what, a little over two years later. So, you know, it started to kick off. Um, and uh, of course, PGA's combat controllers heavily involved in all that. And um, I didn't I I lost, you know, touch with those guys uh for, for a long time. Um, you know, it's just the military man, you know, you move on to your next assignment and all that. And um they weren't part of our squadron anyway. Um they were from another squadron. So but anyway, just kind of lost track of him. And the next thing I know, I'm hearing that um uh, uh Jeremy Hardy, who uh later on he would make uh, Chief Master Sergeant, which is pretty impressive in the Air Force, especially as a PJ. Um, and I went to his uh his pin-on. He invited me because I was stationed at Fort Rucker. I went down to his pin-on ceremony at Herbert Field and got to talked to him again and catch up and all that, but what I didn't realize at that time is that he was suffering severely from, uh, from PTSD um, because of everything that happened in Afghanistan and Iraq. And then um, as time went on, um, you know, I would hear more and more stories about him. And, you know, he was a great, you know, great guy and all that. And uh, the last last thing I heard um, about Jeremy was a couple months ago. I, I, he's better now, but that they uh, they found him under a bridge um, in, in Florida with his, uh, his service dog. And, uh, you know, it's like, Holy shit, man. <laughs> you know, and we were, we were never really that close where I would expect that, you know, he'd, you know, pick up the phone and call me or anything like that. But, you know, um, and if you had, obviously, you know, we're, definitely freaking help him out, um, with that. Um, and then, um, Andy Kubik, who was the combat controller, another, another great guy. He's, he's struggled uh, quite a bit. Um, through the years from what he saw, not from the, this rescue in particular, but from, uh, from OIF and OEF and all that. So, but uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's real, man. And um, even in the, in the helicopter community, in the Air Force, you know, you think, well, you know, pilots, you know, hey, we're just flying around. We don't go through that much in the way of PTSD or stress, but in the um, uh, Air Force helicopter community, rescue community, Um, There's been a lot of guys uh, committing suicide, um, at least three or four that I can count um, that have committed suicide. And, you know, during, during those conflicts, I mean, I didn't do um, combat search and rescue during OAF or OEF, but they were doing mainly medevac work uh, under fire. So they were going in and picking up casualties under fire. And, you know, I've got friends who talk about, you know, yeah, they were just, you know, loading guys' bodies in the back of the helicopter trying to, you know, squeeze them in to get everybody on board to get the fuck out of there, you know, and, you know, they were just, you know, stuffing them between seats and stuff like that, dead bodies, you know, of, of Americans, just to get everybody on board to get the fuck out, you know what I mean? So, you know, there's stuff like that that guys have had a lot, of, lot, lot to deal with too, you know, Crew, uh, crewmen, flight engineers, gunners, you know, that kind of thing. So um, it's been big in every community that's been over there, you know?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's there's so many layers that, a rarely discussed that I've just you know learned about because I've interviewed 600 plus people and got to see such a broad perspective when it comes to mental health but I know we talk about it with Dave too so sleep deprivation is a huge one and as you touched on a lot of the missions you're flying are at night you have something you also kind of mentioned before which I think a lot of dispatchers suffer from too when I go to a fire Yes, there's a lot of adrenaline, but I get to kick in doors and search and pull hose and throw ladders. And there's a, there's a physical offloading to some of that stress. When a dispatcher takes a call and a kid is dying on the other end, they're sat in a chair the same way as you're sat in the chair. Yep. So you have that. You have the organizational stress. And then another thing, as you, you know, told us right at the very beginning of this conversation, what happened to these men and women before they ever even put the uniform on? You lost your mother. You know, so there's all these elements too, and so many people in our profession are drawn to serve often because of the trauma that they suffered. They want the buck to stop there they want they want to be part of the solution, the protector right. so I think yeah. you see a higher you know um percentage of that kind of element in the uniform professions too. Now you combine all those together, and you have the perfect storm with what we see and do in our service. Some people do well, some people don't. And then it's tragic that someone that served in so many different capacities is under a bridge with their service dog. And then we have to do better as a nation.
1: Oh, no, definitely man, Definitely. And like you, the point you just made that everybody handles it differently. You know, there, there there's guys that have seen, a whole, again, women who have seen a lot of horrific stuff that can somehow process it and handle it, you know. I mean, there's still probably demons, you know, buried in there, but they can get, get by with it and still, you know, operate and and function normally. Um, but some people can't, um, my, um, flight engineer, Rich, um, he, uh, he actually, he, he had some PTSD based upon the fact that he had to open fire on that building top. He's like, I don't, you know, he had to come to grips with, did I kill people in that building? Did I? shit whether were were there women and children in that building you know were these guys just running into a house and shooting from the rooftop you know but he had to react you know uh he had to react and, and suppress the the ground fire otherwise well you know we would have been you know casualties so but he he had to deal with that uh as well you know um and again different people handle it in different ways you know um so yeah yeah it's it, it's 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 like you said, we have to do better as a nation. It's, it is something that's, that's immense and you, and it's hard to get your head around really, you know, on, on how to help people, you know, and some people you try to help them, but they don't want help. You know what I mean? There's that aspect of it too. You know, They've, um, I grew up in the era, like you said, you know, where it's like, uh, you know, the machismo thing, man, suck it up and drive on, dude, you know, <laughs> you know, brush the dust off and keep on fucking going, you know? So it's tough.
0: Yeah, no, it is. It is. Because, I mean, I point out this a lot. If you look at what brought us into our professions, it was actually kindness and compassion. It was the gentle side, you know, the, the poet, not the warrior at that moment. When when we're in the middle of a, a firefight or cutting someone out of a car or whatever it is, that's our flow state. That's when you have to be in that warrior moment. But if you are not then giving you that yourself, that kindness and compassion, After that event, whether you're processing, you know, a rescue of a pilot, or whether you're processing a horrific, you know, structure fire that you witnessed or were part of, then, and you buy into that facade of, you know, pseudo masculinity, you're, you're, you're basically adding nails to the coffin, technically.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, usually when, like with, uh, with Medivac, what I've noticed is, when we get back to the base, after we drop the patient off, you know, clean everything up, getting ready to go again, you know, there's there's a lot of dark humor you know you and you've probably you know experience that maybe in the fire world world. yeah 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 you know it can can get pretty fucking dark man (laughs) you know um which you know a lot of ways is is a release you know um because it it laughter you know laughing about something like even though you think how the fuck can you laugh about something like that but you, you have to release somehow and sometimes just making a fucking dark joke about something is a way to, you know, release some of that pressure. You know what I mean? So, yeah.
0: Absolutely. But, and
1: I noticed that, you know, and coming out of the military, I think I was attracted to do medevac and I, I really enjoyed it was because it had that same camaraderie and feeling that I did in the military. You know what I mean? With, with the med crews and going out and doing, you know, what you're doing, picking up, you know, MVAs or people or whatever and bring them, bring them the safety, you know, trying to get them somewhere where they need to take care of, you know? So.
0: Brilliant. Well, I want to hit one more area before I let you go. So you touched on working with EMS. Now talk to me about your decision to transition out of the military and then what that was like, because again, another of the mental health challenges that we see a lot is transition out. You know, you identified as this military pilot, special forces, military pilot for so long, and then, with so many of our men and women in uniform, the door closes behind you. Your ID doesn't work anymore. Now you've kind of lost that purpose. You've lost that tribe. You may have bought totally into the identity of who you were. A lot of people struggle with that. So walk me through that, and then into to fire and an EMS.
1: Yeah, I think. Um, well, I think what helps. What helps is get trying to get into a community or a job where I don't know it is, it is a similar type of mindset, a similar type of individual, right? I don't think I could have gotten out of the military and just gone and sold insurance. I think I would have, you know, drugged myself nuts, you know? Um, so when I was looking at getting out, you know, I still wanted to fly and that's really why the reason really was the reason that drove me out of the military. I was a squadron commander at, you know, the air force, uh, helicopter training squadron. And, uh, you know, I had had a successful command. Everything was looking good. I probably could have made, uh, you know, O six. And but for me, you know, I had twenty eight years of service at that point. I was just tired, man. <laughs> you know, I was just I just didn't feel like I wanted to go any further. That I'd done everything that I could do in the military that I wanted to do. And if I'd have gone any further, I would have been I would have been a staff officer stuck at some headquarters somewhere. Uh, as a colonel. And that's not me. Um, I need, you know, I need rotor noise. I need to smell a jet A, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I, and at that point, as a, as a flying squadron commander, I was current, I had been flying, you know, actually quite a bit uh, in that role. And uh, I was like, okay, I'm going to keep on flying, but what do you do in the civilian world uh, for flying? I actually kind of wanted to get into law enforcement, but most, Of the helicopter pilot to do that, um, you have to go be a patrolman first, you know, go out and, you know, get in a fucking patrol car. At, what was I, 46 years old? (laughs) I really didn't want to, you know, have to go do that for several years, go to the academy, and and I didn't know if my body could handle it. So what else am I going to do? So then, you know, medevac. Medevac sounds pretty good. Um, you know, and then uh, I applied, I moved to Colorado. Uh, I didn't have a job when when I got here, um, moved the family out, you know, got settled in. Um, I was still on, you know, um, terminal leave. So I was still getting an air force paycheck and applying for medevac jobs and, um, got picked up for uh, a job flying from a car medevac, um, in Akron, Colorado, which is about two hours and 15 minutes away from Colorado Springs. So, um, So I was lucky, Um, started training and then, you know, double dipped for about a month, you know, getting a paycheck from the civilian world and getting a military paycheck and and started flying up there. Um, And immediately, and I was lucky because you mentioned earlier about um, firehouses, like really bad ones and really good ones. I was lucky when I got into medevac that I walked into a um, really good organization. Um, Great, great people. Um, great paramedics, great flight nurses, um, and, uh, and fit right in immediately. And, uh, I mean, we were based at a small town in Northeast Colorado. Um, we were based out of a, uh, a hangar at an airport. Um, so it was just, you know, your, your three, the three of us in the crew, we would, um, a lot of the nurses were awesome cooks and they would, you know, cook up fantastic meals and, uh, we, you know, summertime, you barbecue, um so it was just really it was a really good environment really really good and that, and that really helped with the transition from the military. You know, I had a mission I was working with like minded people again um doing something that we really enjoyed doing um so um that really helped out, I think, with the transition from the military to to the civilian world um Then I did that um there, then I moved down the base opened up in Colorado Springs um for a different different program, same company. Uh, I worked for uh, you know the same company, but it was a different hospital program. Came down here and immediately encountered the same thing. I was lucky; another great program with great people, um, so fit right in there. Um, did that for a while, and then a friend. Uh, then we I wound up uh, changing companies because they traded our base to a different company. Um, it didn't like the new company all that much. Um, but uh, the people were still the same. the mid crew were still the same. they were good. But then a friend of mine said, "Hey, man, do you want to fly um, firefighting uh, helicopter firefighting?" And I was like, "Oh shit, uh, that sounds pretty cool. <laughs> you know, I'm all about you know, doing cool shit with helicopters. And I'd never done that before. So, um, so I went and did uh, firefighting for two seasons for, uh, for a company. Um, it was, it was it was interesting flying. It was good flying, uh, challenging flying. Um, But man, I tell you what, dude, I'm getting too old to be in Texas in 107 degrees heat, um, dropping water on a fire, man, (laughs) for eight hours, uh, eight hours of flying, flight time in the seat, uh, usually like about a 12 hour, 14 hour day. And uh, that, yeah, that I was like, I don't know if this is, this is really for me, man. I don't know if I could be doing this at 65. Um, So I decided to get back into medevac again um, here in Colorado. And then you know, again, talking about the good bases versus the bad bases. So I got back in the medevac out here at a different base, and um, this is just because the job happened to open up and I was looking, and they, that was not a good, <laughs> a good program. I did not like that, that environment. So and you know, and it pissed me off too because I had had such you know great bases uh, before, and then I got there and I'm like, God, this isn't what I, you know, what I was used to. Um, this isn't what I want. Uh, so then I got into instruction, uh, instructing uh, medevac pilots and doing that kind of thing. So, but uh, but I enjoy it because I like um, and I like teaching, especially the guys who come in from uh, you know they come in from maybe the tourist industry or the utility industry, and um, I like uh, you know teaching them about the medevac metavac job in the field and all that. So it's uh, it's it's interesting. Good. don't fly as much, but you know I'm getting old anyway, so yeah. It's
0: a unique perspective as well because having worked for four different fire departments, I don't think people that just work for one or two really understand what it's like when you find your dream department and your dream crew in that department and then you're chasing that the rest of your career. And, you know, when you've seen the bar so high and and the cohesion so great and the brother and sisterhood so strong and then you go somewhere else and it's the polar opposite – Just how frustrating that is, of how good the work environment could be, but how much better the service can be, and and really, sadly, the potential of loss of life. God forbid something catastrophic happens in that department.
1: Right, right, yeah, exactly. And you know, I kind of kicked myself for maybe leaving the program here in Colorado Springs, and maybe I should have just you know stayed doing that because I was really you know happy with that. And it's in the medevac industry; it's hard to once you leave a place, it's hard to get back into that same base because other people are moving in and you got to wait for somebody to leave and all that stuff. It's not like you can just, you know, Hey, I want to come back, you know, and I still, you know, have lunch with those guys. And, you know, like I said, hopefully we will have another barbecue here soon and get everybody over do some drinking. Um, But uh, you know, we still, still keep in touch and they keep on asking me when you come back. I'm like, well, shit, dude, (laughs) no slot, man. I can't come back, (laughs) you know? So, but, but it is frustrating, man. Um, And like I said, yeah, I've been, I was really hoping to get into uh, another program like, like the ones I've been in and and, uh, live happily ever after kind of thing. But, but, and that's, that's part of me too. I'm, I don't know, maybe it's because in the military, I, you know, you you change jobs every two or three years, you go to a different unit or a squadron. I'm kind of restless still. And uh, I need to, you know, my wife keeps on telling me that I got to get that kind of restlessness tramped down because I keep on wanting to, you know, chase the next shiny objects, man, you know, I go, Hey, that sounds like a cool job, man. I love to fly helicopters doing that, you know, and then I go pursue that, you know? So, um, that's part of it too. Maybe it's more of my therapy. I don't know. (laughs) Leaving the military, you know, is just trying to, you know, go out and do different things and keep myself engaged, you know, maybe that's it too. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, even, I mean, one thing I've noticed that something you don't normally think about, but, busyness is another coping mechanism when it comes to mental health and that can be healthy you know you can be pursuing things that you really enjoy that are decompressing but there are definitely a group of people and I can identify them in many of my departments we call overtime horse that we used to just you know mock and think they were just purely money driven but now with this kind of different perspective that I have I realize what is it that you're trying to push down by being so busy at work that you don't have time to think about it and so that's right. another part right. of the equation as you start progressing towards the end of your career am i working because i still love it or am i working because i don't want to stop long enough to actually think about some of the things that are in my head
1: right maybe they're maybe they're not chasing something maybe they're running from something in a way yeah you know what I mean? yeah yeah yeah, yeah
0: brilliant well bill i want to say thank you so much we've been chatting for two and a half hours it's been an amazing conversation um you know i'm so glad that they've connected us but yeah. as i said before it's so important for us the average person and obviously the the military men and women as well to hear all these stories not just the military service stories but the whole life story and humanize you know the men and women that that served but also keep some of those stories alive. I mean the heroism of the you know the men in that particular mission that you were with, and the you know, the ripple effect of some of their their service i think is is so so important and won't appear on c n n or Fox so I just want to thank you so much for being so generous with your time today
1: no thank you, thank you for having me and um you know i hope hope I live up to the hype and I hope i you know have a um an interesting story to tell i uh, told and uh, you know um so maybe maybe get something out of it i hope um but uh but yeah, no my pleasure man it was great talking to you I didn't know exactly how how this would go but uh, you know I think it I think it turned out pretty well I'm pretty happy with the conversation that we had so that was good and uh, and thanks for you know um, what you do uh, you know bringing up all of these uh, you know the, the PTSD issues um, with service members and with uh, you know firemen police uh, EMS and all that stuff because you know maybe some of the uh, Vietnam vets or some of the World War II vets, if they had some outlets like this in the past, um, you know, uh, to listen and, uh, or maybe even talk, um, you know, maybe things would have come out better for some of them as well. So, uh, so thanks for what you do. I think this is great. appreciate it.